Welcome back to the Find Your Form podcast. Our guest today is Tom Hopper, a professional bike mechanic who has spent many seasons working with pro tour teams and has worked with some of the top cyclists in the sport. But before we jump into our conversation with Tom, today's episode is brought to you by Millie CBD. It seems like everyone is jumping on the CBD bandwagon. And with so many options out there, what differentiates one brand from the next? I've teamed up with Millie CBD for two reasons. All of their hemp products are grown and processed right here in Colorado, and the quality is second to none. In a world of CBD products, Millie stands alone. Check out all of their amazing products at Millie.co. That's M-I-L-L-I-E dot C-O. Use code FORM at checkout for 10% off your entire order. And now, please welcome Tom Hopper. Tom, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is great. I'm excited to be back up in the mountains. Yeah, thanks for... uh Taking the drive up, how was it this morning? It was totally fine. Yeah, it yeah. was dry. I mean, the snow from Monday was was gone. The sun was out. It's a little chilly out there, but it, it was it was a nice drive. Yeah, I kind of had my uh, my mind made up that this snowstorm was going to come in and then it was going to get back to temperatures in the 70s or 60s pretty quick. But looks like we're slowly going to be up into the 60s or upper upper 50s at least by the weekend. But I think the snow's sticking around, which is good. We need we need the moisture, but absolutely. Um, Hey, so most uh, cyclocross fans are going to know you from your seasons working with four-time national champion Jeremy Powers uh, as his mechanic and um, the Behind the Barriers series that you guys did, I think uh, had a lot of momentum, a lot of viewership. Um, And then, but most recently you've been, you've been the manager for the alternative race program for EF Education First. So tell us a little bit about that. Like what is, what is the alternative race calendar or program? What does that look like? Yeah, so basically we started the program last year um, and it's exactly as it sounds, you know, it's alternative racing. So it's, it's races that aren't necessarily a road race. So we're doing mountain bike races, mountain bike stage races, we're doing gravel races, we're doing cross races. Um, so it's alternative to world tour ra- road races. Yeah, the normal sort of pro tour road racing scene. It's it's everything but. How so? How did that come about? Like, how does what's the the value there for the sponsors that beyond the world tour racing? Yeah, sure. So I think EF being you know a worldwide brand, um, they're they're basically a travel company. Um, they have programs all over the world. And so they were seeing these events, you know, these, these larger mass participant um, events uh, that they sort of saw as, you know, events that we could, like, why can't we do, you know, Dirty Kansas or why can't we do Leadville? You know, seeing us as a, as a racing team, like, why can't we do those events as well? And I think Rafa sort of got on board as well on the content side, right? They're storytellers. They wanted... They wanted to go and film um, these events and sort of bring some attention and energy and, and sort of our vibe as a team, kind of mix it all together. And that's sort of that's sort of where it started. Definitely, you know, when you have athletes like Lachlan Morton, Alex House, Taylor Finney, like last year, um, those guys are very interesting characters. And to put them in a box of just road racing, I think, isn't fair because they're, they're bike racers, you know, they're, they're, they're cyclists. They, they do all of this stuff, you know? And so I think they were keen on doing it. Um, Rafa was excited to sort of back us and, and 
be there to sort of create the content. Um, and EF, of course, they want us to travel the world as well. So that, that's kind of how it all kind of came together. So when you say EF is a travel company, like a, I don't know, what do you mean? Yeah, so they do, um, they do language programs, um, learning programs abroad. So if you wanted to, you wanted to learn Italian or you wanted to learn Japanese, um, there are programs you can sign up for where you travel abroad and you sort of, um, you do these programs in Italy, in Japan, you know, all over the world. Uh, they're learning programs. So that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of what they do. Okay. Okay, that's, that's like the EF, Education First. Totally. stands for like learning different cultures and different languages. Exactly. Through immersion. Yep. Got it. Cool, yeah, because that, I mean, that's what I think people don't really understand is that if you want to sign up for Dirty Kanza, you can go and be in the same race with these elite pros mm. um, that are coming from all over the country, all over the world to race that same race that you're in. So you're, you're lining up and racing against that course, but you also get to have a true comparison of like, oh, well, you know, I was two hours behind Alex house or, sure. um, you know, or Lachlan or whatever. So where if you're in Europe and Lie's best on the age is happening, you can't just go and sign up for that. Like that's not open to the general public. And, th and they do have some sort of grand fondos that they do some of these bigger like Flanders. I know there's a, there's a race they do. I think the two days before or something like that where, yeah, it is, it is open to the public to do it. It's not necessarily the race, um, but, but yeah, that's sort of, uh, in Europe, there are opportunities like that in the U S you don't get those opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, that's a really cool, um, element that I think makes sense with the title sponsor with, with Rafa as well. And Rafa's the clothing, uh, sponsor that you guys work with. Mm -hmm. Um, it aligns definitely with, with those brands, but and it's hard to say this year, right? Because everything's up in, up in the air and everything's in a, a little bit of a different window. But I wonder what other teams take away is that from that, like watching what you guys did last year and, and the amount of um, publicity you received from it, how many other pro teams. I know Trek had a couple riders at some of those events as well. Um, but I wonder if other pro teams see that value and like, hey, we need to have this side project that's, um, getting that brand awareness out there to a, a more specific demographic than what we're targeting with these world tour races. Yeah. And, and I would say, I mean, we didn't, we didn't start, start alternative racing. You know, we weren't the first pros to show up to a gravel sure. event. Um, we might've brought the most attention and sort of started to shine more light on these events. And that was one thing at the beginning we were trying not to do. We weren't trying to, you know, mess this up for these, these great sort of grassroots events yeah. that are going on. Um, we were trying to amplify them or, or just give them the credit that they deserve, that they're putting on this great event in this amazing terrain and, and countryside, wherever it might be all over the world. Um, and there are pro tour athletes that can come and do the same race, you know, and we were, yeah. Like I said, we're, we were definitely not trying to, trying to mess things up. We were just trying to go there and sort of be a part of the scene, you know, so and experience you, it. Did you get a lot of, um, or did you get much pushback? I mean, I'm, sure, I'm assuming that a lot of people were just psyched that these superstars are there and you guys are coming and able to, you know, people are starstruck, you know, and 
but did, was there a decent amount of pushback from the purists that were like, hey, don't, don't come in and, and you know, roadie up our, yeah. our gravel race? I would say at the beginning, you know, when we sort of announced this, this calendar selection of races that we were going to attend, um, the internet, sure, there were a lot of people. Uh, we, we, I thought we got more positive than negative at the time. Now, I was definitely focusing probably more on the positive than negative just because there's really no use on, on, on reading those negative comments. Um, when we got to these events, it was all open arms and it was a lot of positivity. And I think sort of going, to ba going back to how we came about this alternative program, I think having certain athletes that can mesh in these events or that can kind of just blend in, like Lockie, Alex, Taylor, um, a lot of these guys yeah, they just fit in. They fit into this spot. They fit into that rider that's doing this event. So it's, it wasn't, it was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And, and I also knew that these guys aren't coming in to, to make big waves or, or to, you know, um, not necessarily dominate these events, but, but to come in and mess them up. You know, they're just yeah. here, like I said, for the experience and just to see what was going on. And respecting the a Absolutely. The culture. That, that was a big thing when we were planning, even from race to race, was just, uh, was talking about respecting the events and respecting what they're doing and let's not make this a big a big pro tour show show let's let's do it like everyone else and and you know and not go overboard and really not necessarily um uh sacrificing the res the results but but just embracing sort of the heritage of the events or or just you know what what they have and and just meshing and, and sort of blending into the crowd yeah yeah, I thought it was a little bit interesting that, you know, the, you know, last year I did the XL, so I would, I didn't get to see, mm -hmm. I wasn't in the, the 200, uh, so I wasn't like, didn't have a front row seat, but to watch it kind of play out. And I know you and I had chatted a little bit beforehand with kind of going through equipment demands and needs and, and what was ideal for certain things. But, um, you know, I was, I was really interested to see how that was going to play out on, on the race day you know, how the dynamics were going to work out there. And, um, cause there's definitely some strong guys that don't have the, the awareness or, or like they don't get the, they don't receive the awareness. They don't receive the, uh, the limelight, you know, like some of the world tour guys do. So, um, but then even, you know, when Colin Strickland won, I mean, he wasn't on a pro tour team and he wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't really well known outside of either that red, red hook criterium series or the, um, or the gravel scene, you know? So, um, I mean, was that a shock to, to, to you guys or to like your crew, your team that he was as strong as he was and was able to have the result that he had? I don't think there was a shock. I mean, I mean, we're talking, what was the, what did he win in 10 hours? Mm -hmm. So we're talking in that like 10 to 12 you know, our effort where a lot of these guys, besides may maybe in training, Lockie doing like a nine, 10 hour, like training day, th these guys haven't touched that right on a, yeah. on a bike, let's say in, in a race sort of scenario, combine that with, you know, self-supported, um, these, these gravel roads, these like harsh gravel roads. Uh, I think when you're, when you're in an event that that is that long, there's so much unknown and you're just kind of trying to ride that wave of like, how is this going to go? And, and yeah. sort of preparing yourself the best you can, whether on the nutrition side, um, or equipment side to get you as far as you can until, 
because there's going to be stuff that happens, right? Bonking or, or mechanicals. And so how you can sort of adapt or how you can adjust when stuff does go south. Um, but I don't think the guys were surprised that someone rode away. I would say, you know, um, equipment wise, the guys that were on the aero bars, you know, over an effort that is, yeah, 10 hours, 11 hours, a lot of these roads, when it was just flat and straight, anytime guys went in the bars, they could just, ri they, they could ride you off their wheel. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it was, it's a significant advantage having those on. And we sort of made the decision early on that uh, in, in sort of the planning process that we weren't going to do aero bars. We were going to, you know, because that was sort of, there was a level of contention there on, on whether or not, you know, to go full aero and go full just like yeah. over the top. And I think at the beginning we were, we were sort of talking and, and discussing that, hey, let's just try to traditionalize this and just, just do what everyone else is doing and, and keep it simple, right? And not go, not go too far. Um, but, but that was, that was a big, big advantage, you know, and as the day plays out and, you know, you go through that second feed zone and then we head south or I'm sorry, we head east and it was basically just under 50 miles back to the finish line and the wind conditions had changed that, you know, now it's a ripping tailwind all the way home. And so at that point before, so Colin left and then, uh, it was, I think it was Stetna, Lockie and Alex were sort of together and then. Alex got like a slow puncture, um, but the sealant had sealed it, but the rear tire was, was low. Yeah, it was soft. And so I think Lockie and Alex were like, hey, we're going to stop, you know, and, and I think there was sort of like, hey, do you want to stop too, Pete? And then we'll all, we'll try to chase down first. And Pete had decided he was going to, he was going to carry on. And so they stopped, filled up that, that tire. And then honestly, once they got to that, that 155 feed zone that second aid station it was just survival mode yeah they were trying to like get as much fluids get you know as much nutrition in to finish that last 50 because it was i mean the lights were going out for a lot of these guys sure. it was it was brutal um and so yeah i wouldn't say it was a surprise that colin rode away i mean he he rode really smart and he's a strong guy right you know? yeah yeah and he's proven that time and time again but you know i think that um you look at the difference in conditions from the year that I, so in 2017, I got second at DK and that was, I wasn't using any aero equipment. And that was the year that, um, Matt, the guy that won was on aero bars, deep dish wheels, you know, and, and, and he was putting some thought into being more aerodynamic and that paid off for him. But, um, but the course was a different course too. Like at that year we went South first and then came back North. And then last year when those guys were out there, that, that course was a lot more rugged up that section up like little Egypt section up North was, was really rugged. And, um, and not to mention the pace, like when we, when I got second that year, we were 1050, 1051, you know, so these guys are almost an hour faster. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think in, that in just, I think some context for that, you know, it's, it's the days leading up and we're sort of discussing previous times and previous, uh, situations and, and sort of what these races have looked like and how large the group has been for as, as long as mm -hmm. it usually is. And so the guys were pretty relaxed at like, Hey, we're going to cruise through the first aid station and there's still going to be a pretty big group, you right. know, like we're going to, I think it was, it's, it was like fairly common for like you'd go a hundred miles or so and it would it would still be 20 or 30 guys yeah like a pretty big group 
Um, and I remember the first, and, and we sort of had, and, and this is all, we're all new to all of this, right? And so we sort of, I try to map out this schedule for each aid station, like, hey, look, this isn't like going through a feed zone where I'm gonna give you a bottle or a musette, you know, like you're gonna stop, we're gonna have a tent, someone's gonna take your bike, we're gonna try to like clean the chain, we're gonna give you all new bottles, camelbacks, food, you're, it's gonna be a couple, it's, it's like a NASCAR pit stop, right? Yeah. There, there's gonna be some minutes here hanging out, refueling, because we're not gonna see you again for another 90 miles. Um, and I remember, I think it was Christian Meyer maybe came through first, and he had a pretty big gap. Um, and when the guys came through, they were, there was a panic. It was like, hey, the race is up the road. Guys were just like zinging through this first aid station. And there was definitely some chaos and some confusion on like, you know, they were racing. Yeah. Was 63 miles in and, and they were racing. Uh, and it was, it was interesting to see because, you know, the night before we had talked, it was going to be a way different sort of first stop. And Lockie even forgot two bottles when he rolled out of the first aid. We had to flag him down and he came back and, and we got him all sorted and, and off and it was fine. But um, you, can, you can see how quickly or how excited that, that the beginning of that race was. Like yeah. I remember the guys were telling me when they first turned on to gravel, it was like war zone. Like guys were crashing everywhere. People were bottles flatting everywhere. and sealant <laughs> flying up in people's faces. Like it was, it was carnage. And I think there was just, a, there was a lot of excitement. People wanted yeah. to be at the front and all of the guys were like, yeah, we were way too far back. We thought we could just like float up to the front when we wanted. And when you have that carnage in front of you on those roads, you know, and, and I think leading up to the race, th there was a bunch of flooding, right? That maybe deviated some of the course that they were going to use. Yeah. I think there were some they changes they had to yeah. do. Um, not that, I mean, we, we were able to drive some of the sections coming into town and see some of it, but I mean, you can't, you can't recon, you know, a, yeah. co a course like that. And so, yeah, it was, I think for the guys, you know, and, and I think one thing that, um, maybe the public don't necessarily know about a pro tour road rider is, uh, they have, you know, the miles that they have to log in every week, it gets boring out there on the road. And so a lot of these guys, they want to go find the quietest roads or they want to go find these new gravel roads, or maybe it's completely off road, you know, that they're, they're going and they're experiencing. So all three of these guys, they knew how to change, change a tube, a tubeless tire, you know, like they knew all the mechanical side. So I wasn't afraid of any issue that they got into unless they broke a derailleur or they even had chain stuff. If they broke a chain, like they, and, and I'm very confident in, in all three of those guys in their ability to, in sort of any sort of mechanical side. So I think that's one thing that really set them up that they ride gravel in Colorado all the time, yeah. you know, like they, they know what to do. Um, they're used to that. So that was sort of, in their favor, I would say, coming out here to that race. Sure. Yeah, well, it seems like it's opened up, like, looking at, Taylor was kind of on his way, it was kind of his, his swan song sure. anyway, with his, it being his last season as a professional. And, but with Lachlan specifically, like, he, it's kind of opened up this whole other realm for him of, you know, going after these FKTs on the Colorado Trail and the Cocapelli and then, um, you know, doing the, the big races that he was doing in Europe and, um, the multi-day races over there. Um, and then even to see Alex, like, Hey, I was supposed to go to dirty Kansas this week, this weekend is when the race was supposed to happen. And, and he decided to go ride his bike from Colorado to Kansas. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you wouldn't really, even though maybe he's out training and, and doing his, you know, following his program, um, you wouldn't see typically that kind of, um, 
story from from Alex even, you know, and I think that it's it's given them permission to kind of buck this traditional trend of, you know, long road days, intervals, rest. Yeah. You know. And and I think I mean Lockie is is a beast like no other. I mean this this stuff is in his wheelhouse. Like he doesn't I'm not going to say he doesn't train, but th- there is very little structure to his riding days. You know, he literally goes out and just rides for as long or as far as he wants. And a lot of days it's, it's, it's big, big days, you know, on the bike, on the mountain bike, cross bike, gravel bike, whatever it is. And it's just, it's big, big adventures. So this, these now seeing him in these, these events, these longer endurance races, people are like, wow, he's really good at this endurance stuff. He's sort of always had that ability to, but to not ride. really the platform to showcase it. Totally, totally. Right. And I think now it's, yeah, him being in these events and, and seeing that he can do these, you know, massive, massive efforts. Um, he's been doing it all, sort of all along, yeah. you know. Yeah. So what's, everything's on hold, right? Well, yeah. I wouldn't say everything's on hold, but um, I mean, the European season is happening or has happened or it started in, mm-hmm. in earnest. And um obviously you're here. Yeah. So you're, you're not in Europe because typically I guess, give us a, a quick rundown of like your, how did you get here? How did, how did, as a professional mechanic, yeah. how did that process start for you? So we'll go, we'll, we'll give you like the brief, sure. brief history, right? So yeah. like back in the day as a kid growing up, my dad, my mom, they had bikes, nothing like crazy, but they had these like Schwinn sort of, they were like hybrid mountain bikes, you know, they were definitely more on the mountain bike side, but it wasn't suspension, you know, it was just kind of like cruisy hybrids, we'll say. And so I saw that they rode, you know, on the weekends casually. And then for me, middle school, high school, that was my transportation. You know, me and all my friends, we had mountain bikes. We rode to school, we rode home. You know, when we were freshmen in high school, sophomores in high school, we didn't have our license yet, or we weren't cool enough to have like <laughs> friends that had cars, we had to ride bikes to the parties at night, or we would cruise around town like on our mountain bikes, you know? And this, this one funny story, so I had, I had a Schwinn, because that was sort of in the family. We had Schwins, and I had these two really good friends, and they both had uh, giant iguanas. It was an old, old school mountain bike, and... I still have an iguana. Just yeah, put that yeah definitely. And so we, uh, we would just cruise around town, you know, and like hit up the high school parties. And we were always like young at these parties, but we would just show up and they're like, how the, how the hell did you get here? And like, oh, we rode, you know, and we would call ourselves the iguanas of the night, you know, because we would, we would literally like, you know, we'd be done with dinner and then, you know, our parents really didn't care what we were doing. So we would just be out cruising around town, seeing what was going on in this small town in New England, in Millis, just outside of Boston. And I remember this one time we showed up this high school party. It was probably a high school party we probably shouldn't have been at. <laughs> but uh, me and my buddy Chris, we had our we had our right pant leg rolled up, right? And so back in the '90s, like that, that was like that was borderline like gang yeah. related, like, tight rolling. Well, yeah, pants. like why, why are you rolling up one pant leg? And it's like, oh no no no, I don't want to get grease, you know, on my pants, you know. And we almost got into some heat <laughs> at this party. Um, but yeah, so. Bikes through iguanas of the night sounds like a pretty cool T-shirt. Yeah, idea. yeah, yeah. I, and and you know I didn't have a giant. I wanted a giant. I just couldn't afford one. But you um, you can't be in. You you've never been on an iguana. Yeah, you they, don't even know what an iguana is. I've seen it. They I were sweet. Yeah. They, they were really sweet. And so I know that hardtail. That was that was sort of a big part. <laughs> it's my existing hardtail. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Full rigid, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, like a one-inch shock in the yeah. front. Yeah, a little elastomer. Yeah. Um, so that was middle, high school, got into college, um, went to a community college, played basketball, D3 basketball. Uh, and then once I got out of college, um, I was still, I'm, I'm a competitive guy. I like to do things competitively. And so biking, mountain biking, racing, that was sort of the next step to, to kind of fuel that competitive nature of mine. Um, and I was pretty good in the lower levels, but then like everyone, once you, once you get to the top level, it, it, it separates. Right. And so I decided I'm much better at working on these things than racing them. And so I sort of went down that path of, of, you know, bike shop jobs and, and smaller, um, domestic road teams. One team in particular, um, it was a, it was a sponsor by, it was NIRAC. It was a kind of a new England East coast domestic road team that, um, I knew Adam Meyerson, he was sort of on the team and sort of, uh, helped run that, that program. And I knew him from cross cyclocross scene. That was also sort of a big thing. Mountain biking, I think cyclocross, they were both in my wheelhouse, those shorter sort of events. Um, and he, they needed some help at this race, um, tour of, or tour de tuna, which is Pennsylvania sort of stage race. That was sort of like the close, like big stage race. And Went down there with him, um, did it in 06. It was like a July race, like a week-long race. Went pretty well. Um, that was a domestic road yeah, squad? Yep, yep, yep. Just a yeah, road stage race. And then that uh, did, did a couple other like local kind of smaller smaller events, um, but felt like, yeah, this is, this, I think this is what I want to do. That winter of 06, um, I had a bunch of friends who lived up here in Vail that were transplants from New England. Um, and they were like, hey, you know, you should come out, spend a winter here and, and just check it out. It's really cool here. And I was like, okay, I moved to Colorado. So packed everything up in my little Ford Escape and drove out here in the, yeah, the, like around Thanksgiving in 06. Um, got here, lo- loved it immediately. Loved the snow, loved the mountain, loved the dry climate. I think that was my, my sort of my favorite yeah, thing big, big about change being here. From yeah, New England, right? yep, yep. The wet snow in New England is is rough. And so was here for winter, loved it. Um, got a ski job, you know, was working on skis. And then, um, at the end of the winter, I'd planned on just driving back to new England. All my families there, they're still there. Uh, I was just going to move back home. And, um, my friends had sort of convinced me, they're like, Hey, you know, you, you've been here for the, the winter. You should, you should stick around for the spring and the summer, you know, the mountain biking here, you know, it, it, it's great here. You, sh- you should check it out. Just, just do one year. And so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 do, I'll do a full year in Colorado. And that spring, I was fortunate enough to get hooked up with uh, this guy, Ben Turner, who I had known uh, from the cyclocross scene, New England cyclocross scene, and knew him through some people. Um, and he, he had heard that I was in town. I was in Colorado. And at the time, he was working operations for uh, the Slipstream um, pro team. And he was like, Hey, uh, we need some help domestically, you know, tour of back then it was tour of Georgia, California, Missouri nationals. There, there was a huge scene going on back there. And this is 2007. And he was like, Hey, can you come and help us, um, at this race in Georgia? And I was like, sure. Uh, and so I went out there and it, it went really well. I worked with a, a mechanic, uh, Damian Shanks. Um, he kind of, took me under his wing and, and kind of showed me the domestic scene. And we did that, we did that whole year. And, and right toward the end of that 
calendar. Um, Beth, uh, who worked in the office, who was kind of like the GM at the time with, with JV, she was like, hey, you know, we're expanding. We're, we're, gonna, we're trying to grow. We, they had a small European sort of outfit, um, but they were looking to grow uh, the next year. And the Slipstream program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they were like, hey, do you want to move to Europe next year? Uh, and I was like, sure. Yeah, why, <laughs> why not? Uh, and so that following year, our team grew, you know, probably doubled in, in size in riders and in staff. We weren't quite, um, I think we were pro-continental at the time. Uh, but we were growing. We were Who was on the team that year? Yeah, so that, that year it was like Timmy Duggan, Lucas User. Um, was that when Jason Donald? This was Magnus Backstead was on? Or was not, that, not not quite. Yet. That wasn't yeah. that was eight two thousand eight. Okay. That's when it really sort of blew up. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it was a lot of. It was still, I would say, a development team. Uh, but they were looking to go pro tour, and I think the next step was you know, the year that they signed David Miller and Dave Zabriskie and mm -hmm. Christian Vandeveld and, and uh, Magnus Beckstead and like that whole, that whole crew, that's when it really sort of ballooned. And so I was sort of, I was in Europe for those, um, those beginning years of the team. And so that's eight, nine, 10. And then sort of, it, you know, it, I would say 2009, 2000, going into 2010, um, we were growing rider-wise, we were growing to a pro tour level um, but I think our staff and the infrastructure wasn't, wasn't sort of catching up. And so we were working the staff, you know, over 200 days a year, we'd be on the road, just basically traveling from race to race. Uh, and it was a lot, you know, and at the time, you know, I had a girlfriend back here and I was trying to make that work and she would come back and forth to Europe and sort of spend some time with me when I was home. But, you know, I had this apartment in Girona that I would, you know, I would laugh. I would spend like 40 nights a year in this this apartment in downtown Girona that I was paying 500 euros a month, you know, <laughs> and I was just never ever there. And, um, I sort of reached, I reached a point where I needed a little more stability. I needed, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to start a family. I wanted to kind of settle down a little bit, you know, and I, I didn't want to be on the road as much. Um, and so at the end of that 2010, that was, that was sort of, you know, I decided I was going to step away and, and not do the road scene anymore. Um, and it's sort of, I had, I had a bunch of months sort of off to kind of think about what, what was going to be next. Um, and at that time, you know, I, I was, I was working with you through right. the cross seasons and the, I, I would say the one positive doing all those pro tour years, you know, I was getting a 12 month salary, but I was, I was literally working like full on for, let's say eight months, you know, nine months. And then like spring classics, totally through, through the summer. Yeah. And we would usually back then it was like, we would end with like a tour of, uh, Missouri, which mm -hmm. was like a September, August, August race. Yeah. So I'd come back for that race and then I'd be done and I'd be still, you know, I'm getting paid through the, through the winter. And so I would come out and help with a lot of, with either the cliff bar cross team, you know, I was helping you mm -hmm. a couple of years. And so that, I think that's sort of where my passion was the cycle cross. I don't know the individual sort of aspect of, you know, rider mechanic, that sort of um, relationship. I that think feed, I feedback loop. Yeah. I, I appreciated that a little bit more than just the, like, I don't know, you got, you got eight riders, you know, it's all the same bike. It's, you know, it's relatively the same thing every day, just kind of rinse and repeat. Um, and you're just, you're just a cog, you know, I was a truck driver basically in Europe, just going from like race to race, transporting equipment. And, and yes, uh, I was traveling to some amazing places all over the world and I, and I totally appreciate all, all of that, you know, but it just, I needed something different. And so 
going into that uh, 2010, into the 2011 year, um, I sort of, I'd been out of the, the travel sort of mechanic game for a while and didn't want to get in full time again, but um, I was approached by Jeremy Powers. Um, he was leaving Cannondale and he was looking to start his own program and a uh, guy by the name Jeff Rowe, you know, he was running the Roth Focus team at the time and got connected with him and Jeremy and, and Jeremy, I knew Jeremy from, you know, New England cross and just sort of also the domestic road stuff. He was on Jelly Belly for a bunch of years. And so we would connect and we would see each other. And there was always sort of that Americano, like, you know, we, we knew of each other and he knew that I was a quality mechanic and he was, he was moving to his own program. And so he knew, and, and I think leaving a program like Stu's program at Cyclocross World, Cannondale, that, that, that's a big, that's a big step. You know, I mean, they have yeah, it. They've th kind of set the gold standard in the U.S. for many years. Absolutely. For, for over a decade, it's always been them and we're sort of, you know, trying to fit in behind. Um, and so he was looking for somebody. I, I think I had availability. You know, it, there, were, there were some long talks with, you know, my wife. I mean, there was communications. I remember vividly with you because I was working with you at the time, you know, right. on sort of like, hey, I'm looking to, to, to do this program with Jeremy. And so once we started cracking uh, the contract and, and figuring out like, hey, what's, what's this going to look like travel-wise, money-wise, stuff like that, it was it was a fraction of, uh, you know, the travel time, it was a fraction of what I was doing on, on the roadside. You know, it was just going to be the fall and winter. Um, and it was going to be weekends. I was going to fly in and out. You know, I wasn't going to be driving the truck. Uh, we sort of had set it up to be as easy as possible for me and for my family. And it worked out. And it, you know, again, it took me to all sorts of places all over the world to for Jeremy to race cross and for me to work on the bikes. And that's, you know, that was, it was amazing. You know, that was, it was a great experience. We did behind the barriers. That was also a lot of fun, you know? And then I would say from there, from those seven, seven years that I did with Jeremy, um, toward the end of that, I was still doing domestic road mechanic work, uh, sort of like hired gun, mm -hmm. you know, there, there, whether it was like tour California for, um, dimension data or anyone that needed help domestically, you know, I could, I could sort of be, um, slotted in to help. And I was still working with slipstream here and there, some races. Um, and once EF came on board, they were, they were doing more races in the U S and they needed sort of more help. Um, and so I was helping them. They had a little service course here in Boulder that I sort of looked after. It wasn't a ton of equipment, but it was enough equipment for us to do all of the U S domestic races. Um, and then from there, uh, once the, the alternative stuff sort of got meshed in, um, it became a sort of bigger responsibility for myself to do kind of both. And yeah. And then here we are. And your you cross know. cross responsibilities at that point were, um, such that you could manage that alternative team. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically Jeremy had retired. Um, and then I did, you know, I was just looking for more time domestically with, with the road team and sort of, uh, just, yeah, more work basically. And, um, yeah, here we are and we're in a pandemic and we had a lot of plans this year, yeah. you know, uh, last year, I think it was a big success with the alternative calendar. We went, we did some amazing events all over the place. Um, some of the, some of the best trips races I've ever been to, I would say 
were with the alternative program. Uh, like what? Going to Three Peaks, you know, uh, it, it's a cyclocross race in Yorkshire. And I, I've, I've always seen the videos of that like epic, like climb that they have to do. It's a run up basically. Yeah. Um, and just, it, it's a, it's a cross race, but it's, I think it's like two and a half hours long. You know, there, there's running, there's riding, um, or scrambling. I mean, it's, that's it's, that iconic picture where there's totally like there's the fence post five people yeah. strung out on this yeah. hill. That's yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. And they're just, you know, quarter mile long or something. Yeah. 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 And so going to an event like that and seeing, you know, what they've built there and how many years they've been doing it, it, it it's, it's been going on for a long time. And so seeing that countryside and that part of the UK was, was amazing. Um, you know, going to dirty Kansas, that, that was great. I mean, it's still in the U S but that was, that was really cool to see sort of that level of gravel racing. Um, we had the opportunity. We went to Cape Epic this, yeah. this year. It feels like last year. It feels like 10 years ago. But we were in South Africa when, when it really like, when this pandemic really kicked off and we had Cause to, that's early March. Yeah. Yeah. We were basically, uh, we were a day away from the start from the prologue. Um, and the race org, uh, they got some, they, they got news that the university in South Africa wasn't going to allow them to, to have this like mass participant event uh, on their university. Um, and that sort of killed the whole thing. And, and we got a heads up, you know, the race was starting on a Sunday. We got a heads up on that Friday night at dinner, actually, um, that the race was going to canceled, you know, basically get the hell out of there. Uh, and so we were scrambling to get tickets and get everyone back to their respective countries, right? Because stuff was going to get locked down. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to get back into the U S. And so we had flights booked that next morning, that Saturday. And so it was this mad dash to pack everything up. It was definitely sort of surreal. And, and looking back at it now, you know, it was, it was wild that we, that I was that far away of sort of from my family and just now knowing what, what all happened and where we are today, it's, it's, it's pretty wild, but yeah, I mean, that was an event, um, that's been a bucket list, you yeah. know, for me to go to it. I've, I've watched all the videos. I've seen all the additions of the racing that goes down there and just how, how epic it is. Right. Yeah. And, uh, that was one I was really looking forward to. And it was, it's a shame, you know, that, that everything happened the way it did, but that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, and, and from there we had, yeah, we had some plans. We were going to go and do some, some cool stuff this year. Um, and it all, you know, it all sort of, it's on hold, I guess you could say. Um, when when the pandemic really kicked off, uh, I was let go from the team because there just wasn't going to be any races, you know. And and I think the the initial sort of um, plan was, hey, when racing resumes, and and we were thinking, oh yeah, July, August, September, like we'll be able to go and do Leadville, like we'll be able to get right. back to these events. It's in August. It's, it's yeah. so far down the road. Yeah, like we're gonna we're gonna clean this up and we're gonna be back working and racing, you know? And so I think we were all pretty optimistic. And so that was sort of the carrot. It was like, Hey, just like, hold on. We're going to, you know, we need to, we need to figure out the next move for this. And, um, one by one, these events got canceled or postponed or, or pushed back further in the calendar. And ultimately, you know, nothing on the alternative side really, really happened. And so, that sort of, that eliminated my position, you yeah. know, and, and I had some European stage races, uh, that I was going to travel over and work with the team, um, to kind of coincide with the alternative stuff. But, 
with you know travel restrictions and, and all that um, and the amount of staff that they had in Europe already that were just sitting around waiting to work um, there was no reason for them to to keep me on to fly me to tour Switzerland or yeah tour wherever you know so um, it all sort of just went away and I'm sad about it you know I'm, I'm bummed there were you know I was going to go to the start of the Giro and do do the TT in the, the first couple of days there um and, and that was going to be exciting for me. You know, that was going to be a big thing. And, and so to miss out on those and miss out on these opportunities, you know, that, that I thought, you know, we all thought were going to be, you know, it was going to be the next step for this, for this program, um, to have it all go away. It's yeah, it's sad, but you know, I think everyone, everyone's sort of struggling with the pandemic in their right. own ways. Everyone's missing out on stuff. You know, it's not just me. Yeah. Well, and it's not just EF, you know, it's every sure. team is, is, going through the same struggles and yeah, I know I'll be interesting to see what sponsors do, you know, moving forward. If that's, if, if racing is going to be back at a capacity similar to years past or, um, you know, what's, what's the level of commitment from sponsors and, and all of that. But, you know, you look at the, the amount of racing that has been condensed into the last part of this season, you know, I mean, the Volta's going on right now, the Giro just finished, I mean, three grand tours in like 90 days or something mm. ridiculous, you know? So it's, um, it's a ton of racing. And in between there, you had world championships and you had the spring classics that got moved to the fall with, you know, Roubaix and Flanders and well, Strada Bianchi was in there too. Right. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. So, um, you know, you have all these, these, as a fan, it's exciting because you, you know, it's for so long, everything was, nothing was happening. No sports were happening at all. You know, like everything was, was locked down or, or, or postponed or canceled. So then it's like, all of a sudden you've got inundation of, of all sport. You know, if you've got basketball is happening, yeah. football, hockey, you know, then all the cycling stuff with mountain bike and road and trying to get caught up on all that stuff. I know, um, we got Hulu at the house and it was like, yeah all of a sudden you know because we usually don't we don't really have cable we just had netflix and, and internet and so we were we'd missed out on a lot of the live sporting stuff and then i was like this is unprecedented it, <laughs> like, it, all, absolutely <laughs> i mean i think there was a day in september september where it was the first time ever that all four sports were playing at the same time it was yeah. like baseball football you know basketball and hockey playoffs were going on you know and that it's, it's unreal and and, yeah. and there definitely i think was a craving and there was you know people people wanted that they needed that entertainment, you know, they yeah. needed sort of that distraction. I think same thing with the road racing, you know, all these European races that are going on, uh, even two grand tours overlapping. I mean, that's, that's insane, yeah. but, um, they're all trying to cram this, you know, this full year calendar into, into a fall, you right. know, it, it's pretty wild. How did you feel like it all went? Like, it, like looking at the tour, the way that was handled and then some of the other, some of the races, like, how do you feel like that's all gone as far as a, not as a casual fan or even a, a super fan, but more of a admin side or someone that's on the staffing side, did you feel like that went, was handled well? Yeah. I mean, from, I, ha I have a little bit of intel sort of into, into the scene or, or, or how these races go, at least on the staffing side and sort of the precautions and sort of the steps and the protocols that were in place. Um, I couldn't imagine being over there. I mean, it, it's got to be so stressful for, for those staff members where everything is just, I'm not going to say life or death, but the working conditions are, are brutal, you know? And I think having the tour sort of first to set, 
sort of the stage and, and sort of how maybe the rest of the races were going to go, at least protocol-wise or, or, you know, the do's and don'ts. And the fact that they, they did a great job and there, there, there wasn't any like major catastrophes or, or any teams that were thrown out because of positive tests or anything like that. Um, that sort of helped, I think, the rest of the calendar to sort of like, okay, if we just stick to this plan, we're going to be good. But, you know, not, uh, not having fans and, and having everything be such a tight bubble, um, it's a lot of additional work. And, and, and I've worked the race, I've, I've worked the tour, and that race in particular is stressful just from media, performance, like it's a big deal, right? That's the one big race of the year. And so having all that, like, hey, this is the tour, plus we're in a pandemic, you know? I mean, it's, I could imagine, I mean, it must've been really, really challenging, you know, um, for, for any staff, whatever position you might be. Yeah. But then on the flip, they asked them to, you have said, we need to stop the Giro now. Yeah, and so that, that, uh, that was an open letter to the race that wasn't actually from the team, it was from EF. And so there was a little bit of confusion on exactly where that was coming from. And, and, uh, and I don't know too much about in the race. I think they got some shit in the race, the, the actual team that was there and the directors, because they were like, hey, what the hell is this, this letter? But it wasn't from them. It, was it wasn't from, from the team, it was from the sponsor. It was from higher up. Yeah. Um, and it was just, and, and rightfully so, right? Like, yeah, maybe, maybe the conditions were worse than, than we saw, right? Or that were, we've heard. And, and I have heard that there were some, some bad stuff that, that was going on that wasn't, wasn't up to code, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's got to be difficult. I mean, these, these athletes. For the safety of the riders or the safety of the staff? No, I think safety for, for everyone. Yeah. Riders, riders in particular. The, the staff, they're not, doing, they're not doing the event. They're not, they're not putting their bodies yeah. on the line every day physically, mentally, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it was tricky, but ah, I, everything, it, it seems like everything's been fine. I mean, there's, there have been a few tests here and there. Um, well, it was interesting to watch the number of people on the side, fans that would come out at the tour and, and you know, and everything was starting any fans that you saw, they were all wearing masks. Yeah. And then as you got further into the climbing stages and, um, you know, the Pyrenees and the Alps, you saw, even though those stages were, uh, those roads were, were closed to camping, you weren't supposed to be necessarily up there. Yeah. Um, there were still tons of fans. And then of course, you know, the longer they're there partying and, and drinking, the more they get relaxed about their, um, having wherewithal of what they're, effect is potentially on the riders and we see that every year of how yeah. close they get to the riders as they're as they're running along next to them and everything but then in this year with with the pandemic going on i was really i guess grateful or glad to see that we didn't have this big you know spike that we, sure. at least that wasn't um uh advertised you know it wasn't like in the news yeah but um as they've, as they've gone on to these other events now, it, it's country to country is a little bit different of like the, the comfort level from the spectators and the fans. And, um, and, you know, when you think of it, like you're a professional cyclist, you're going to work, but your, your cubicle essentially is out on the roads yeah. and you're subject to all these outside um, aspects that are out of your control completely. It, yeah, and if you think about it, you know, previous tours on these uh, mountaintop finishes, right? Like it's dangerous enough 
when, when you have all these fans crowding you and things have happened, there have been crashes, there, there have been mishaps. Um, and then you, you multiply it by a thousand because this person yelling in my face could have COVID, you know, right. and not having that safety, not having, you know, their, their arena or their stadium to compete at as professional athletes. They're doing it out pu- like publicly, basically, you yeah. know, during a pandemic, it's, it's yeah, it, it's gotta be really, really hard for those guys too. Yeah, I just, um, you know, watching like some of the arena sports, you know, it's so eerie mm. to watch. I mean, they kind of pipe in some, some crowd noise and stuff, but, you know, like watching the football game the other night, it's like, man, this, there's nobody there. And you, you can hear everything that's yeah. going on on the field, which is kind of cool as a fan. Yeah. But I just imagine being like an athlete on the field like, with no, no crowd feedback. It's just like practice almost, you know. Totally. You'd think it would be tough to get up, you know, if, if – you don't get that momentum wave that you get sometimes with the hometown crowd or when you get, you know, uh, some, some momentum behind some I mean, plays. Right. And, and that's like, you know, the NBA side, they're playing in a bubble, right? They're playing in two gyms basically yeah. every night, all of the teams that were there. And so, y- yeah, I mean, you, you don't have away games. There isn't an away crowd that's yelling and, and there isn't that pressure. So it, it is completely different. And you can kind of see, I mean, ultimately, I think the best team won, but it is interesting to see teams that underperformed. And was that because they were in a bubble? And there are a lot of things about being in a bubble, I'm sure, that for, for as many months as they were, that it wasn't the most comfortable. You know, sure. not just the basketball, but everything, right? Or being yeah. away from your family. There's all sorts of factors, but it is interesting to see how these sports are sort of adapting to, yeah, to performing in front of no one. And, right. and it's not sustainable financially, right? Like these teams are, are losing these, uh, these sports are losing so much money, not having gate fee. Yeah. Having, yeah. having fans entering their stadiums, yeah. you know? Right. So yeah, it's a lot of new, everything's yeah. new, right? Right. I think everybody's fingers are crossed just that it's, it's the, just the current situation and we'll get back to some semblance of, of normalcy, but I don't, gosh, doesn't seem like we're in a, on a path to do that anytime soon. Today's episode is brought to you by Millie CBD. These days, it seems like everyone's jumping on the CBD bandwagon. And with so many options out there, what differentiates one brand from the next? I've teamed up with Millie CBD for two reasons. All of their hemp products are grown and processed right here in Colorado, and the quality is second to none. In a world of CBD products, Millie stands alone. Check out all their amazing products at Millie.co. That's M-I-L-L-I-E.co. Use code FORM at checkout for 10% off your entire order. I look at the races that these guys are doing, you know, and, and I mean, you, can cho- you could choose the handful of riders. I don't have a list of riders that were like in the tour that also raced a Giro or um, that went straight from the tour that, and then what was it, 10 days later, they're racing the world championships, mm-hmm. you know, and like seeing some of these guys that are, I mean, just finishing a grand tour like that is a three week uh, stage race and then being able to ride at all the next week, you know, cause typically if that's your big event, you know, if you're, if you're focusing on the tour, you're going to take some time off after that. You know, there's some, I mean, what are the, the criteriums that they do that are like kind of. Obligatory? Yeah. And, and I think, I think maybe, I haven't seen all the results, but I think one trend that you're seeing is a lot of youth, right? A yeah. lot of youth is at the front of these races. And so maybe with this condensed um, racing or 
you know, you're not having, you know, maybe these older guys that need these, these 10 day stage races to get into shape, to then race a grand tour, to race another grand tour at, at top level, they're not, they're not getting that. So they're just basically, they got to train and then go into these big races and you're seeing all these young riders, which honestly I think is refreshing. The racing has been refreshing to see, um, just not the status quo, just not, you know, the big team, the big budget team on the front riding everyone off their wheel and then yeah. X rider winning, you know? So I think that's, who are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. The big budget team, <laughs> the big budget team. What, yeah. Well, yeah. Big budget yeah. sponsored by big budget. When, when you're wrenching at the tour de France, it's, a, it's just not like a four or five hour deal. Like it's a 12, 15 hour day for you guys. It, it, it's a big day. I mean, I think for all staff, uh, it's a long day. You know, you're waking up, you're waking up before, everyone before else. anybody yeah. else. It's usually like six, depending on how long the transfer, 6am, 6 6.30, if you're lucky, straight to breakfast. And then it's like, we plan to be at the truck by X amount. The cool thing about the mornings is usually you've done all the work the night before, right? So like 6.30, we're at the truck, we're pumping up, we're just pumping up tires and putting bikes on cars and putting bikes either on the bus or on cars to transfer to a start. And depending on your race or how far that transfer is, um, then you're driving a car to the start, right? And then you're hanging out at the start. And so let's say Grand Tour, we have four mechanics. And so two of them will go in the race cars because there's two follow cars. And then two of the mechanics will do the next hotel. So they basically pack up the truck after the race is left to the start and they'll drive that truck to the next hotel and sort of set up the camp, the wash station, everything, maybe glue some tubulars that were flatted the day before, and then they'll just hang out until we get back to the hotel. And then so back to the race, we're hanging out for the start, the riders head off, we jump in the car, and then we're in the car anywhere from four, four to six hours in the day, just sitting in the back, hopefully not doing anything, just staying in the car. Um, if there are issues on the road, obviously we're out helping, replacing wheels, bike changes, whatever, whatever needs to be done. Uh, and then you finish the race, Usually the finish is not where the, the, the hotel for that night is. So there's another transfer. So let's say it's another two hours to the hotel. You're, get, you're arriving at the hotel anywhere from, let's say, 6.30 to 10.30. 30, 10.30, 11.30, that's like the Giro or that's like uh, the Vuelta. Those have really late transfers. So then you show up to the hotel and it's just a mad dash to try to basically do two hours of work as fast as you can. And that's basically washing all the bikes, going over all the bikes for the next day, washing all the cars. If it, if it hopefully it didn't rain, otherwise you're gonna wash all the spare bikes that are on top of the roof. So it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. And then from there, it's to dinner and then it's usually straight to sleep, right? Um, so that's, that's your typical, typical day at the tour. But then like, are you talking with uh, the team director saying, hey, tomorrow we're expecting rain. We're gonna back that air pressure back to 90 pounds for everybody. Uh, we're going to run different tires tomorrow. Yeah, so gonna... I would say nowadays the, the directors actually do a much better job of really planning and managing sort of what equipment choices the riders have. And usually at the beginning of the races, there will literally be, um, we'll get like a, like a spreadsheet of like, Hey, and, and the riders have already signed off on this. It'll be like, Hey rider, um, you know, this is, if you looked at the race book, like these are the stages. Uh, this is what, this is what we recommend, you know, flat day, climbing day, TT, whatever it might be. We're going to do these. If you have any tire pressure, um, recommendations or requests, yeah, put them in this, this spreadsheet and we'll make sure every day it's done. If you don't put it in there, 
then we're just going to do what we think is best. And so there is some, yeah, we'll make, we'll make the judgment call um, on, on what we think the riders, and some riders don't care. They'll get on any bike with any wheels and any, anything, and they'll be fine. And then there's others that, that want specific things on their bike, and they'll request them. You know, and, and, and that's either a text message you know, a day before or in the morning or after the stage, hey, we need to lower the saddle, we need to do this, we need to do that. So there's, there's a lot of communication between everyone, but usually we like it just coming from the director and the director just saying, hey, talk to all the guys while well, you guys were washing all the bikes and doing all the repairs. Tomorrow, we need these pressures or we need these wheels on these bikes. And it's usually, we try to get it at, I would say, the minimum the day before. So then the guys that are going to the hotel, they could, they could prep that stuff that's going to go on the bikes, the race bikes that night. So. Right. Whose fault was the Garrett Thomas deal? I, like, I honestly didn't even see it. I just heard there were some yeah. bottles that fell out. No, no, no. Not at the Giro. Oh. Before that at the TT World oh, Championship. Oh, the Garmin. Yeah, the Garmin. He, he, he can't monitor his power the Gosh, whole time. Gosh, I mean, with big budget team, uh, I don't big know. Big budget team. He just calls them big budget team. <laughs> I mean... Th- th- I would say, I'm not going to point fingers. That's got to be like a 50-50 deal, right? That's like the rider, in my experience, um, when we're set up for a TT day, we're out in front of the bus, we get all the bikes on trainers. We've put, you know, we have this whole spread. All the riders have to do, climb off the bus with a charged Garmin in hand, put it on the trainer bike, do their warm-up. Hopefully, they transfer that garment to the race bike. Sometimes we'll, like the guys will get off to go put on their, their helmets and their speed suit or get all like fully aero. And if you're a nice guy like myself, I'll take garments and I'll just go and put them on the race bikes knowing that like they're trying to go from the door to the start line in like, you know, minute by minute. Like it's, it's on schedule, right? Like off the trainer then, get all kitted up, ready to go, and then you need to be at the start line at, at X time, right? And so any, any stuff that we can kind of do to set them up and prepare, I'm not sure what happened. It must have just got left on the, on the bike that was on the trainer. Um, but I'm sure, I mean, if you look at any time trial day, bus, camera shot from the tour from any bike race, you, gotta, you, you have like multiple people just standing around waiting to do something, right? Whether it's a Swanee with bottles or a mechanic to adjust something or take a bike off the trainer. There's always people around to like jump in and do things to miss something like that. I mean, yeah. Is that enough for him yeah. to lose the time trial? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it seems like, you can't I mean, it meet sounds her, like a good effort. excuse. Like, yeah. I mean, but I, I don't know. I mean, he still had a good ride. Yeah. I mean, if you want your garment on your bike, just, I would just say, put it on your bike. Right. Right. Or, or like assign someone to put it on your bike. I don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, like you said, the, the professionalism of each rider, you know, I think at that level, they're all very professional. Sure. Right. And they, they understand that the, the staff is very professional as well. And so you are helping everyone do their job. So everyone wants to see everyone succeed. Right. But so I don't feel like any of those things like get overlooked on purpose. Totally. But there's a lot going on on a time trial day, especially if you're one of the favorites, right? And you've got that pressure and you want to make sure in your mind, you're thinking and focusing on exactly what needs to happen for you and your race to go perfectly. So the more stuff you can take off your plate, then the, the better. But yeah, there's certain things that in my career, like what I've, there's certain things that I would have like delegate out to staff to, 
mechanic or, or whoever's helping me with bike stuff. But then there were certain things that I felt like I was in charge of, you know, and, and some of those things were like, you know, my last minute bottle to, for the start or any nutrition stuff that I needed for like anything that's going from the team area to the start was in my mind on my checklist, sure. you know? So yeah, I don't know. I think it's, you know, with, with that much pressure and the, that much, um, everything's under a microscope yeah. at that and, level. And, and I think preparing or having all these like protocols, like, Hey, you're the towel guy or you're, yeah. you're the whatever guy, this is your job when we get to the TT day and then you get to the TT day and there are things, you know, there's crowd, there's, there's a deviation to get to the start because you got to go around all these buses and then like the best way is this road over here that people will scout out. This is going to get you straight there. You're not going to hit any crowds or roadblocks. And this is all sort of planned out. And then you get to the situation where you just got a, off your trainer. You did a, you did an effort right before you're going to the start. And then you have all these things in your head that you're trying to calculate and you're hoping, right? If it's a, t if it's a good team around you, people looking out for you that, they're preparing things and everyone's sort of doing, doing their job. Um, and it, yeah, it's just chaos. No matter how much every TT that I've done, and I love the TT days, it, it's probably my favorite day um, because I think we as mechanics and staff, we can greatly um, uh, affect the result, right? Positive or negatively, you know? And, and so I think if, you, if you're good at your job, you can help these guys be successful, right? Um, and so having all these things prepared yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of pieces to kind of put together and, and, you know, but again, it's a team. Everyone should be looking out for each other, but also that athlete should, should have some responsibility on, on certain things, right? Totally. Yeah. Well, and you know, you, you look at the athletes and, and this is probably across the board, but athletes that are at the very top of the sport, you know, they oftentimes are this, like, they're highly tuned, right? Like they're, they're, well-trained and a lot of times they're this like type a personality and that's kind of what's gotten to the dance at some point you know is that they thrive in this structured environment right of training every day here's the schedule follow the schedule and you're going to see results right um so that oftentimes though can can result in like a high strung individual sure you know someone that's a little bit um edgy or especially if you're training hard and you know peaking and, and external pressures from sponsors or fans that you put on yourself uh to perform like how i mean knowing you and your demeanor you know you're that way you're that type a type person that likes everything to be in its place and and um but how does your what you bring to that that uh relationship how do you play off of that? Like when you're like specifically maybe with your relationship with Jeremy, like, sure. You know, he's, he's very much that way, like very structured and, and tries to think of every possible scenario, but it just seems like your relationship, you guys played off each other so well. Yeah. I, I think a lot of it, um, was just the preparation and, and learning like, okay, it's not, you know, two minutes before the start, five minutes before the start, when he's on his trainer doing the effort, that's not the time to ask him what his tire pressure should be yeah. or when he wants to take his first bike or what are we going to do if we're doing half lap pits, you know? And so I think, I think learning how they think and how athletes that are about to, 
they're trying to perform at their highest level, right? In cycling or whatever the sport may be, before they go into that arena, before they get to that start line is not the time to be for questions. I, I, I would say in my experience, in most cases, or at least questions that could be asked at dinner the night before, right? Like, hey, we know it's gonna be muddy tomorrow. Uh, we're gonna run the rhinos and we're gonna run them at X, you know, front and rear. And you're gonna do the pre-ride and we're gonna scout it all out hours before and we're gonna lock that all in. So then when we get to the, when we get to the hard part of the day, which is the warm up and the race, there's gonna be less stress or less things to think about. All he has to think about is the music in his earbuds and the, the time on the clock and when he has to get off that trainer, you know? And so I think I, I'm sort of that, um, I'm sort of always thinking of how I can help them not stress out about something, you know, whether that's like preparing food ahead of, ahead of time or preparing drinks or preparing anything that I can do that seems so easy. Like this podcast, you know, if I'd thought like, oh, I should put some waters out here, you know? So if we get thirsty, the water's right here. I was sort of in that same mindset where I would learn at least early on that what his needs were. And then when it got really stressful and when he was really stressed, what did he need there? You know? Um, and I think there, there were times when, when things didn't go well and, and we both had to adapt or communicate on, on why they didn't or, or how we can do them better. And I'm also a fast learner. If, if we do something incorrectly, um, a bike exchange or something that doesn't go well, it's, yeah, it's obvious. And, and that's those mistakes. That's, that's the only way you're going to get better. Right. And so I think working with someone like Jeremy, his personality, and sort of my personality, um, I knew that I could be an asset to him in ways that maybe he had in the past, but I could at least alleviate some of this pressure or stress that he might be sort of thinking about or dwelling on. Um, for, the, for those small percentage points, right, mm -hmm. with athletes that they reach a certain point in training and everything, but then they get to race day and they're all these external sort of stresses that, um, that aren't necessarily, uh, they're not needed, right? And so if you can have people preparing that stuff or doing those odd little jobs or whatever to help them out, that was, I don't know, I, I, I felt like I thrived in that sort of position in, in preparing him and help, helping him, right? as yeah. a team that was yeah and having that foresight of what are they going to want or going to need sure and having that even to know to talk about this stuff the night before as opposed to you know 20 minutes before the pre-ride or even yeah. even you know much less like before the race start and, and i think i even reached a point almost with analytics right it was like i was i had this notepad and i would i would write down and and this I would say was a, a bigger deal when we would go to Europe, right? Cause it wasn't like we were doing a domestic race that we had done five years in a row or, or that like, yeah, we know it's always going to be dry there. Or it's always going to be this tire. It's not going to be technical. When we went to Europe and the resources were lower and the, the conditions were, were more extreme. I think that's when it was like really important to, to realize that like, Hey, when we go to Namur and we were running, you know, mud tires at, 12 PSI, 15 PSI or whatever it might be. Let's note that down during the pre-ride. If it does dry up or tack up, then, then we went to this dry tire, you know, we ran, we ran it at this tire pressure. So then I could prepare myself that, you know, in the race when he's doing laps and you're seeing things change, 
you can just make an executive decision. Like, okay, I think I've learned enough and I know that Jeremy or Jeremy just yelled dry tires or yelled something like more up or down or whatever it is, then you can adapt and you can change something and maybe make the call like, Hey, look, I have, I have all this data and we've talked about this before, you know, that, that you need this when the conditions are here. And so I think notes, you know, just realizing sort of what the plan B and plan C could potentially be. Cause that, that's how it is, especially with cyclocross. You think like, Oh, I'm just going to bring some mud tires to the pit but then you find it starts, you know, the sun comes out, everything gets really dry and it's actually much faster on dry tires and people are scrambling and, and not having that stuff prepared. Even if you don't even use it, you could bring it to the pit and then just bring it back and be like, ah, oh, well, you know, we never used it, but there's that one time when, you know, we do change the dry tires and the result is improved because of that, you know, and just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to be prepared, right? No right. one, no one ever, no one can be over prepared, I would say. Right. I think Mark Compton might push that boundary of being, well, <laughs> there's times where you're like looking around the pit, like, okay, and I think, what, I think, what's going on? And, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely, you might overthink it, but I think for me it was more, I was reacting yeah. to, to some, it's like, I'm not going to just jump to conclusions and start changing things that I think that he needs. It's like, I see a small problem here before it gets to a big one. Let's try this. Okay. Yeah. It's not that big yet we tried that, that didn't work. Let's go back to this or let's try this one instead of totally, you know, flipping it. Yeah. Well, I think that that's the unique relationship that you get by working with the same staff, you know, sure. like this rider uh, and mechanic relationship and same thing with like rider coach relationship that it has to, you have to see it play out for a little bit. You know, it's hard to just walk into a scenario and, and have that communication and have that confidence in each other just right, right out the gate mm. right so i think that you have to uh like as a coach for me working with clients I've, I've a lot of times our best results are like in our third year of working together you sure. know like the first almost two years you're just kind of figuring each other out and you're you're uh getting to know how the, the rider reacts or how that athlete reacts to training load and, and their confidence in you as a coach that you're prescribing the things that are going to get them faster. And I feel like it's the same way, but, um, as a mechanic, but when you have that ability to work with that same athlete one-on-one -on -one and you guys have those, that common goal to work, work that you're working toward is a little bit more unique than like your world tour um, teams that you're coming in, especially if it's a team that you're not necessarily, you're kind of just, um, you know, just hired in for the, the, the race, the one week race out in California or, mm -hmm. or wherever, you know, that you're not necessarily one of the normal cogs in that, in that clockwork. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, and I'm sure you get to see the highs and lows, right? Like all the, the emotional highs and lows that these athletes go through and, um, but yeah, I think that it's something that gets overlooked so often, you know, like we, we, as, as a fan, you see the results, you see the athlete. And I mean, really, if you're, if you've done your job well and correctly, then you should be in the background, you know, like, yeah. you know, you typically only hear about a mechanic whenever they've messed up, sure. you know, you don't, you don't get the, they don't, they don't get the recognition, you know, but, yeah. um, but I think that that was what was really in my experience working with you and then seeing that relationship with you and Jeremy 
progress, you know, like it was a joint effort, you mm -hmm. know, and, um, his championships were your championships, you sure. know? Um, and you even won some, some of your own championships in there, didn't you? Like some, I did. <laughs> I, won, I won a couple. Yeah. I won a couple mechanic national championships. Yeah. Which I, could I, thought was I, I could change a cassette faster than anyone else. <laughs> that, that's how, that's how, what it came down to. But it's fitting, right? That no, you have like the it, fastest, it the fastest cyclist. Yeah, no, and no, and, the and, best mechanic. And and I'm like, I'm half joking. I mean, it, it's they were they were carnival games. Sure, you know, for us mechanics, and it was a good time. And and uh, the folks that put it on, they were good sports, and it, it was yeah, it was entertaining. We yeah. were at a brewery, um, I think both times. Uh, it was just a good good fun night out, and we had some great sponsors and you know, we did some mechanical stuff, yeah. you know, uh, and it was good fun. And I just happened to be maybe a little bit more competitive than, than the rest of them. And, and that's, <laughs> but yeah, no, I've got, I've got a couple, I actually, I've got two jerseys from, from that, that are hanging up just in my closet. I haven't, I haven't framed them because I don't, what? they're I know, not, I know they're not totally legit as that. that like your, that's, uh, it's the only artwork in here. It, you know, no, it's really impressive. Around. It's really yeah. impressive. <laughs> You're um, kind of like a golf caddy, though. I mean, you're 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 a lot like yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, and I think that's kind of like Jake was touching on with Jeremy and I. We we grew into that role, and yeah, like you said, you don't you don't normally hear about a mechanic unless there's an issue or, or oh wow, did you see that slow wheel change or did you see that, God forbid, knock on wood, uh, tubular roll off? You know, like that's that's the only time you hear from us. Uh, so hopefully if we're doing a good job, you know, you don't hear about me or you don't know about me. Um, but yeah, caddy is, I love playing the caddy. That's great. Yeah. But then do you ever get to play golf? Like yes. how much, like you, you talked about the 6 a.m. It starts Tour de France. We're done at 10, 11 at night going to bed. Yeah. Did you ever get to ride? Uh, well, you know, Vontu or anything? I mean, no, you go to these incredible places. So I would. Your hands are on the most incredible components and bicycles. I would, I'll give you both sides of this. Uh, I'll give you both answers. So I would say early on uh, in, the, in the very like traditional side of the profession in Europe as a mechanic or staff, um, early on, it, it was, I wouldn't say it was totally like frowned upon, but it wasn't, it wasn't totally accepted that you took, a, you took care of yourself or you looked after yourself health-wise. You know, like it was, if you weren't working in the truck you know, the whole time, then, then you weren't, you weren't taking this job seriously, you know? And I, and that could have been just the crew or, or some of the staff that I, I was, I worked with early on, but that was sort of the vibe that I got. And, and back then, yeah, I, I would love to go trail running or riding it. And, and I knew, I knew early on that riding a bike at a, at a bike race wasn't like, wasn't the, the look you, you didn't do that because there was, but you live in Girona. I mean, no, you gotta, you no. and, know. and so, yeah, sure. Yeah. When I'm home, I would go cruise. But if, if we're at, you know, if I'm at the hotel, you know, maybe I could sneak out and ride, but then I have my bike in the truck and it's like, it's already full of bikes. And so that's where like running came in. Everyone would run. You'd either run like run clubs 530 in the morning or like before breakfast. Um, or you try to sneak out a run when you're at the hotel, but, but it had to be that like 30 minute to an hour max, you know? And then that I would say would be acceptable. Um, I think nowadays, you know, at least me personally, when I go to these events and, and maybe some of the smaller ones, if you're going to a big time race, um, like I went to tour of Columbia this year. And so me and 
and basically the rest of the staff, we all ran. They were all really good runners and they would run. They had a run club at every race. We had one of the directors that would run with us. And so we would wake up and we would, and in Columbia, everything started a little bit later. So we had an early morning to get out and run. And it was honestly, it was the best part of the day. If you could wake up early, get a little exercise in, then I felt prepared to like, then I could work the rest of the day and do whatever it took all night long and I'd be set, you know? And so I sort of made it a point um, to look after myself, you know, sort of, and maybe it was too late in my career, but later in my career that I need to make time for myself. I know I'm doing the job 100% as well as I can, but when I'm on the road this much and I'm gaining weight or I'm not, I'm not feeling, you know, healthy physically or mentally, you've got to find time for yourself, you know? And I don't think that's not a negative. That should be a positive, right? Because if you have staff that's happy, that are going out, they're looking after themselves, you know, maybe they're getting fit because they're running a lot, but they're still able to do their full-time job. Um, I think that's fair, right? Sure. Um, and well, and you have this, you know, you, your resources are such that, yeah, you're in these beautiful places Yeah. and you have the equipment or you have the nutrition sponsors or, you know, and you're in like EF, you have New Balance as a sponsor. And yeah. You get these perks, but you're, yeah, like you said, you're kind of not, it's frowned upon to take care of yourself. Sure. You know, and I know that was some conversations that you and I had years ago about like, yeah, what is the long-term, you know, what's, what's the, the, the long game look like, you know, yeah. like, cause you can't sustain this forever. Sure. You know, cause it's just, it's just not healthy mentally, physically for relationships, those kind of things. Like that's the big challenge that I think a lot of people, you know, if it's the athlete you're looking at, like, well, they're getting paid and that's providing them with a, um, you know, living. And, and you could say that about the mechanic, the, the staff side as well, but the riders get to go home and they get to go take a break and, and, you know, I don't know. It just seems like the, the staff is the, like lowest on the totem pole, but as far as their, their needs, but they also have to show, if they're not showing up and performing, then the athlete suffers, the, the team suffers, the sponsors suffer. Totally. So, yeah, I think that that's an interesting shift that seems to be happening is that, you know, I mean, you still see like the Belgian mechanics that show up and they're smoking cigarettes in the pit. Well, that yeah. is the classic. You've right. got these mechanics all standing around smoking and then the thoroughbreds come in, get the bike and off they go. Right. Yeah. You know. What's the coolest place you've ridden? Like when you were in Europe? Uh, or, or run? Um, well, so I did a bike ride in Oman many, many years back. Uh, we, we did a swing where we went and did tour of um, guitar and then Oman was the next race and it was, uh, you know, Oman is on sort of this like rocky coastline and it's all this like amazing, a lot of it is like man-made roads, um, but the scenery was amazing. That was, that was pretty amazing. Uh, I did actually last year when I went to Three Peaks, I brought, I brought a few golf clubs with me, just a small little, little set. And I actually golfed at three different uh, golf courses, not like well-known, like big timer ones, just kind of smaller, smaller uh, courses that I could get to that were close to where our Airbnb was. Um, that was amazing. That was like, I don't know, that, that was really, really cool. Um, Switzerland, I did, I did some road riding in Switzerland during Tour of Switzerland one year. That was, yeah, I mean, anytime, honestly, anytime that you can just get out, and whether it's running or riding, and, and more often than not, it was just running, or, or even I would just cruise into town and just, you know, because we were, we're going from hotel to hotel, city to city, 
all the time at these races. And so just being able to leave your hotel room, you know, and go experience and see, because I would say, you know, a lot of times these mechanics, we're just, we're just washing bikes in hotel parking lots, right? Just going from city to city. And we're not, we're not stopping and sort of appreciating or seeing where we're, where we're at. And, you know, I think it's, I think that's, that's the best part of this experience, right? Is, is trying to experience these places that you're traveling to or that you're going. And so I always sort of try to make a point, like, Hey, we're in, yeah, we're in Colombia or we're in Italy or we're wherever it might be, you know, get out and like, I don't know, Google something and, and go, go see something, go open your eyes and experience something locally. So then when you get back home, they're like, oh, that's so cool. You went to Switzerland. Like, what did you see? And I was like, no, nah, nothing. I was washing bikes in a parking lot, you know? I'm in a car and Vodders is screaming on the radio. Sure, you know? sure, yeah. And, and so that's, you know, I think I learned that early on that like, hey, you get to go all these cool places, try to like, you know, do the, do the work the way it's supposed to be done, but then like try to, you know, try to experience the rest of it. Is that, do you feel like that's a generational shift that's happening or has happened that like because this old guard that was there for so long or maybe it's a european versus american thing but um it seems like the current i mean i guess i don't know if lack of a better word millennial mentality is that they're not as concerned about like the I'll, they'll take a pay cut to have experience, right? Mm -hmm. to, to have value, to add, have a, an additional value to their job. Um, you know, so like, well, if this, uh, if I get this paid vacation or if I get the ability to work from home or of course they're all working from home right yeah. now, but, um, but you know, these different kind of perks of the job, like make it worth their while mm. to, to do the job as opposed to, it's not just all about, you know, the bottom dollar. I, I would say, at least on the roadside, I, I think with, and I'm not sure when this started, but you know, the marginal gains, the performance side aspect, all the teams having performance directors and, and bringing all this additional staff to do, you know, the marginal gain stuff. And, yeah. and I think those roles were sort of created to, to really maximize these athletes, right? And I think a lot of times it, did also rub off on staff. You know, when you brought in a performance director that was like big time coach, nutritionist, whatever it might be, whatever his role was, um, but he was also a healthy individual and like understood that, hey, if, if you're healthy and you live, you know, a certain level of lifestyle, it, it's, it's gonna be positive, right? And so I think having those people on staff and, and sort of creating that culture that like the marginal gain stuff, the smaller bits, oh yeah, we should also be taking care of our staff. Like staff should be healthy, ha healthy as well. Like we should be doing yoga classes and, and run clubs with our staff if people want to do it. And not yeah. like pressuring people that don't want to get healthy, but people that do want that outlet um, that are on staff or maybe that work together with other people that like to run or whatever it might be, um, go to the gym at the hotels or whatever it might be, just looking after themselves. I think those sort of coincide. That, that whatever that switch was, whenever the marginal gains, whenever that, um, performance really ramped up um, those small percentage points uh, I think that was sort of the shift I would say mm -hmm. and then but obviously you're also bringing in younger staff right new roles to fill and so maybe a lot of those people um, were just healthier individuals to begin mm -hmm. with you know um, 
Well, so, you know, for you or for, for me in our relationship, you know, whenever you and I met and, you know, I was racing cross and was um, trying to break into that, that top 10 level uh, domestically at the, in the professional uh, peloton. And then you started helping me out as a mechanic. And, and just some of the things that you said and the way you showed up and the way you handled yourself, you know, like uh, how organized you were and how professionally you handled everything. And even though we didn't have much of a budget to work with, um, you know, your, some of your things that you told me at the time were just like, you know, just because we don't have that professional level yet with budget-wise, doesn't mean we can't appear as if we do. You know, it doesn't mean that we can't carry ourselves in, in this way and prepare in this way. And it, it really helped me shift my mind around, like, you know, you're going to play as, you, as well as you practice, right? So if you carry yourself in this way and have this mental uh, state around your training and your racing and your prep, then that's going to carry over. And ultimately, whenever you do get more budget or those results start coming and you're able to um, see that value of the hard work you've put in, then you don't, it's not like this paradigm shift that you have to make to, uh, to continue to see that progress, right? It just adds in and you're able to just do more with that budget. For you, has there been, was there someone that you could point to in your, in your career that was like a mentor to you that you felt like spending time under that person's wing or, uh, or just something that someone said to you throughout your career that was really something that shifted the way that you approach? Yeah, I mean, mentor, I mean, we, we spent a little bit of time together, but knowing Adam Meyerson for New England and cyclocross and sort of his sort of s stature in New England uh, cycling, I sort of always looked up to him. And, and so when he gave me those opportunities to work for his, for the road team that he was on, and then he even helped me out, you know, I remember the first day, you know, I was washing bikes and I was washing bikes maybe not the correct way or I was taking too much time or I was doing something too sort of like too much. And I remember him coming out and, and at the time it was like their team, it might've been eight guys. And then we, there was like a development team that was there as well. So I, I had a, a ton of work that I was doing, but I remember him coming out and he showed me like basically how to wash a bike. You know, he was like, hey, no, no, no. You know, like take the wheels off this, 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 these few steps. Um, and then there were a few other things, you know, I was in the car every day. And so, and I'm, I'm learning, this is my first like pro event, let's say like a domestic level. And, uh, I, he was, he was teaching me all sorts of things along the way. So I would definitely say Adam Ireson. And then I think when I moved to Colorado, um, you know, Ben Turner, he, whether it was with slipstream or with the cliff bar development team, like everything that I sort of learned uh, from him on, on, yeah, the preparation and sort of like, um, or the, the confidence or the vibe that sort of he would put into a program. I think I try to emulate and try to bring, bring to my own programs and to sort of how I sort of act or, or my relations with, with athletes. And so those two guys are big. Damo, uh, he was also pivotal. Like he was really big. I mean, I remember going to that race in Georgia, tour de Georgia, 
And it was the same kind of deal. Like I was coming in super green, super eager to learn and whatever he needed, I was going to do. And I think we got on really well because he was, he had been in the game longer than me. And I wasn't, you know, I would do whatever I would do whatever he needed. And I, I sort of learned the right way. And I, and I would say he's one of the best mechanics I've ever met. Um, and so I definitely looked up to him and we had a bunch of great years working together domestically. And so he would also be, yeah, I would say at the top of the list. Yeah. What is, so if you think about that, like there's a, there's a shift, there's a difference between if you take your, your bike to the local bike shop, um, you know, if sometimes you get lucky and you have a mechanic of your caliber that happens to work at a bike shop, right? And so you have that, um, you have access to someone like that. Uh, but a lot of times you don't, right? Like most local bike shops, you have the mechanic is either the owner that's maybe been there for, for many, many years, or, um, you know, it's a younger kid that has moved in and uh, is kind of learning the ropes, you know? Or, or, uh, but what is, what is the big difference in your mind from the, the mechanic that's at the bike shop that's working on kind of whatever rolls in uh, road, mountain, cruiser, you know, budget bike that someone got from the thrifty yeah. to, you know, $12,000 road machine. You know, what's the big difference between that mechanic versus a, a pro tour level mechanic and, and what is required of them? I would say in my personal experience, um, it comes down to two things generally, right? It's, it's respect. And so I think respect to communications. And, and what I mean by that is when someone comes in and you're a bike shop mechanic, right? You're a professional mechanic. You work in a bike shop. Someone comes in and they have needs or um, they, they think they have needs, right? They come in and their chain keeps falling off. And if you don't respect the customer or respect that bike that they're coming in for that and you kind of see past and you're like, oh no, the bike's just dirty. You, you know, like you don't know what you're doing or customers are coming in for, for your professional help, you know? And so I think being respectful to the customers and sort of, you know, showing them that like, you know, whatever their needs are, they're being met. Right. And just communi- communicating that honestly. Right. That's like the biggest thing, you know? And if, if you don't do something correctly or you don't meet their expectation, then, then trying to, trying to get it right. But I think too many times, with bike shop mechanics, their egos get a little too big or they think that like, you know, they're better than this job. I shouldn't be working on this Huffy. You know, I shouldn't be working on this crappy bike. I want to work on this, this fancy carbon bike, you know, but they're all bicycles that are being used in similar fashions, right? They're all being ridden for a certain level of enjoyment. The athlete might just vary, right? And so I think understanding that, that just because you're not working on racer Joe's bike, you know, who's doing 500 miles, but you're working on, you know, commuter Joe and his bike that he needs it to commute to work every day. Like it's the same, they both have needs. And just, I think meeting those honestly and just respectfully, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing is, is industry people, they think they know everything, right? And they think that they know what's best for every customer that's coming in the door. And a lot of times customers don't even know what they want or they, they're intimidated by by the retail environment. And so it's more often than not, it's not a pleasant or positive experience. And so I think me learning on the professional level of like, no, 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 this athlete, like he's, you know, he might be telling me his, whatever, his bars are crooked. Um, 
And I'm like, oh no, they're not crooked. It's just like his nervous tick or like he needs me to adjust something before the race. Um, that's just, those are his needs. So instead of questioning his needs or being like, nah, nah, you're, you're stupid. You, you don't know what you're talking about. Your tires are fine. Why, why don't I just do what, what is asked, what the need is? And if it makes the customer happy or makes the rider happy, um, that, that's, that's why I'm here. That, that's, that's my job, right? To, mm-hmm. I'm here to work for these athletes. And so I think egos, um, thinking you know it all uh, when maybe you don't, um, and, and just compassion, right? Like retail's not, not the best job. And, and yeah, sure, dealing with some of these customers or some of these bikes can be hard and difficult, but I mean, we're all more or less trying to do the same thing, right? We're all trying to find some enjoyment through a bicycle. And so that's where that respect is, you know, just, and, and sure, there are plenty of customers that can be unreasonable and, and not easy to deal with. But again, we're there to try to provide a service. And so if you want people to come back and keep, you know, paying for those services, those are sort of the keys, I think. Yeah. Do you, is there, so with the advancements in technology, Right. So if you look at, cause I mean, just hearing you talk about the working on different bikes, right? So just in the last like 10 to 15 years, you know, there's been a, a lot of advancements, not, you know, kind of mountain bike, full suspension stuff out of the way, but more electric shifting, you know, through axles with disc brakes on everything. Um, you know, for, for you at the world tour level, you're gluing a lot of tubulars, um, you know, with working with Jeremy and Cross, that's a lot of tubulars that you're gluing on. What's the one thing that you are glad you're not working on anymore? Like, is it, you know, like, I think like canty braids, uh, like towing in canties or, uh, you know, like the, the mechanical versus, uh, electric shifting. Yeah. I mean, gosh, top of the list would probably be tubulars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if you're in it and you're doing it all the time, um, but if you're, if you're like just dabbling, if you're just trying to pick it up and do a couple here and there, it's just, it's such a skillful art. And if you're not, you know, if you're not doing it all the time, it's, it can be really difficult. And so not, you know, for example, before a grand tour back in the day, like before the tour, the Giro, we would, we would re-glue every wheel in the truck. We would have brand new tubulars. We'd have 60, 70 sets of zips hanging in the truck that all had to be fresh tubulars because our head mechanic, that was, that was how we went into a, a grand tour. And so being in the service course for five days straight, just like assembly line, you know, and, and fortunately, um, we were on Vittoria's those years. And so those, those are relatively easy to get on. You don't really need to, to pre-stretch them. You could, you could muscle them on. I couldn't imagine being, you know, one of the teams that had, uh, continental tubulars and having to glue that many tubulars. And so that skillful art of tubulars, I still love the, the thought of gluing tubulars. Like I was, I was asked to, to glue up some tubulars, uh, for this cross season. Uh, the, the trip isn't happening now, so I don't have to do them, but I was actually looking forward to, oh, I'm going to glue up six sets of, of cross tubulars. This is going to be great. Like I'm going to get back into it. Tubulars, I could definitely do without, um, back in the day, you know, when disc was coming around, electronic was coming around and, uh, I was, I was like psyched. I was like, yeah, disc brakes. I know exactly what to do. Hydraulic bleed them, you know, uh, 
you just have, have to have a certain level, I think, of experience to know like what you're getting into. They're actually not that technical, but if you have no experience, then, then yeah, it can seem very daunting. And I, I remember back when we were starting to go, you know, like full disc or trying to go disc, right? Um, there were some older mechanics that were like, yeah, I don't even know. You're gonna have to do all the disc bikes because I don't even know how to do this. I, I don't know why this is rubbing or I, I'm not changing a wheel. I'm just gonna do a bike change. Like there's no wheel changes with disc, you yeah. know, like it's just gonna be too hard. And I think everyone sort of adapted disc and now it's, yeah, it, it has its place, right? Um, the electronic shifting, again, because it's not cable actuated, um, maybe the OGs were like, nah, 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 this, this all has to have cables. Like, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to depend on this battery holding up, right? But all of it, I, I found that if you, just, if you just dove in and you just experienced it and you did it, uh, you were going to get better. And if you were a good mechanic, you were going to get much better at it rapidly, right? Yeah. And so I think, um, yeah, just just sort of embracing what the industry wants to put, put out there or, or what they want to push um, for product, that's, that's sort of the key. But tubulars, there is a love and hate. Like, I, I love the way they ride, and when they're clean and they're done right, they look great and they stay on and all that. Um, but it's, it, it, yeah, I'm okay not doing that every, <laughs> every fall. Yeah. Well, you know, I think because of where you are, uh, you know, the, the level of the sport that you're involved in and, you know, the riders that you're working with are on the prototype stuff, the, the brand new equipment that's just coming out. You know, if you didn't have that uh, mentality of that, like, put your ego aside and dig into this and figure it out because this is the next wave, right? And, and then you would be left behind. You would be one of those mechanics like, hey, I'm, if it's not... Uh, cable actuated or if it's not um canty brakes or you know i mean there's i know a mechanic here in the valley that's like yeah i just work on road bikes yeah well okay <laughs> so i mean then are you that just seems to be the common thread of like your story you know o over the years is like to, that has gotten you to be your character now like who you are now and I'm sure that carries over into your relationship with your family, you know, your, your girls and, and your wife of solving those problems. Like just putting the ego aside and, and just looking at what needs to be done right now and what can I prepare for in the future? Yeah. You know, and I think that that's, that just seems to be that common thread that you keep going back to. Yeah. Is, you know, a lot of it is also confidence, right? Just a mm -hmm. confident being confident in your ability, um, whatever it might be, whatever you do, and, and, and also learning, you know, uh, learning a new trade or, yeah, putting your ego aside and just realizing, like, oh, no, no, this isn't going away. Like, electronic shifting is the future. You know, like we say, our disc brakes are the future. That's what everyone's going to be riding. So you just need to, you just need to get in there and, and figure it out, yeah. you know, and, and kind of go from there. And, and ultimately, all this stuff just gets easier with, with that experience and with just figuring out what, what, you know, the pros and cons or, or how easy or how not easy, you know, some of this stuff is. Well, you're lucky to be in that place of being able to provide that feedback to the actual manufacturers and say, Hey, this is what we're experiencing when we're testing this stuff. So if we made this change, you know, we can, we can make a better product in the end, you know, the next generation of this derailleur, uh, or, or these brakes or. Yeah. And, and I think, 
I think uh, a pro tour mechanic, a lot, you know, across the board, there are so many like really, really amazing mechanics that work on the pro tour level that are basically a side R&D department for these, for these products, for these companies. Because when you have mechanic A that's working on this electronic shifting, you know, every single day, the same chassis, you know, the same setup day after day after day and re sort of like retuning or, or fine tuning exactly how it should be set up and how, like what works best. I mean, that feedback to these companies is, is priceless, right? right? I mean, that's, that's why a lot of these relationships with these pro tour teams and these component companies, that's the hand in hand. Yeah. Here, try out these new shifters. What do you think? Oh, you know, and it, a lot of times it's these mechanics that are figuring out like, oh no, this, could we do something like this? And, and sure, there are some companies that design the stuff and it's flawless and it's ready to go or they don't, they don't necessarily need the feedback, but then there are plenty of companies that, yeah, any feedback is, is going to be, yeah. you know, helpful. Something that came up on my, um, I think it was Facebook feed the other day was this, uh, article from 2009, maybe that James Wang wrote. And it was when it was looking at bikes from nationals and, uh, from cross nationals and specifically looking at single ring, uh, bikes that were running single ring. And, you know, it's when a couple different options were coming out for, uh, chain, you know, there was before it was anything was a clutch rear, yeah. right? Yeah. So you're trying to make a road rear derailleur work and in a single ring fashion. And I mean, you had taken on my bike, it was when I was with, with mafia racing, you had taken a, a chain watcher and flipped it, turned it upside down and you had put it in a vice and bent the tab over the top, right, right. you know, to keep the chain, not only from dropping off the inside, but also bouncing off the top. Totally. And, um, you know, then of course that all, all those kind of, uh, chain watchers have kind of gone away for the most part because of the invention of the clutch in the, in the rear derailleur. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's that kind of innovation that you look at something that's out there currently in the marketplace Like, well, we can modify this. And I see that all the time with the top level mechanics, of, sure. you know, even the, the brand new stuff that's coming out from Shimano or SRAM. And they're modifying it and they're giving that feedback say, Hey, I modified this and this is how, and this is why. And they give that feedback to Shimano. And then the next generation, those chain rings come out with that same modification already machined in, you know? Yeah. I mean, there, there's, if you look close enough, I think on some of these profile bike profiles, you know, these top guys, there are little hints and there, there are little details in there that, um, that our mechanics, you know, mechanics are doing to improve a lot of these setups yeah you know and it's it's fascinating they're they're you, extremely talented nerd out on that stuff and just like look at like all the i zoom into 10 million <laughs> yeah and i mean i'll even look at like you know how the bars wrapped yeah. you know and and how closely spaced each bar tape is and just just the the attention to detail and i think that's more than anything right it's like you can uh you can build a bike and, and no one will notice but but you could build a bike and you could you could add some touches on it that you know they might not do anything at all besides, you know, cosmetic or aesthetics for it. But I don't know, it, it's, it's being able to sort of look sort of outside that box of like how a bike should be built or how a bike should be set up. And when you're constantly doing it all the time, you know, wh why wouldn't you just try to make it as best you can and, and keep working to that sort of perfection? Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think there's a different uh, approach to, to that level of detail 
whenever you know that bike's going to be photographed and sure. out there in, in all these publications, you sure. know, and I think that if you take that level of detail into your everyday yeah. relationships or, you know, whatever, you know, if you approach life that way, like, yeah. yeah, this may not be out on every social media channel or, um, under a microscope, but if you approach it as if it was, I think a lot of our relationships would be a lot better place than they are. Yeah, no, f funny story. Uh, th this, this might've been last week or two weeks ago. And, and some photographer, I can't forget the name. I, I can't remember his name, but on Instagram, he had like reposted, you know, a throwback Thursday of like, it was this picture of Jeremy down in the sand at Gloucester. It's a ride slash run up. And it was one of the only races that Jeremy ever did that I wrapped his bar tapes white. And, and back then we had physique bar tape and the black bar tape was this like soft touch bar tape. That was, it was great, wet or dry. It, you know, he loved the feel of it. They had this, um, they had this white bar tape that was like more of a leathery, you know, it wasn't the best feeling. Like it only lasted that one race and then we had to pull it. But I remember putting it on that bike and it was his, his white, mostly white national champ bike from 2012. And I remember just staring at this picture and looking at this bike. And I remember all the detail, it was bringing back all these memories of like the small little details that I did with, whether it was shrink wrap or yeah, the bar tape, because it looked really good with the front end of the bike or just like the red hoods or whatever it might've been, you know? And I, I think about that now when I look at pictures, it could be anyone racing, you know? And I don't even look at the rider or I might glance like, oh, that's so-and-so. But then I'll look at the bike and look at the tire combination with the rims or, or something and just look at the detail to see what's going on. Are, are they doing anything different or is there any innovation going on there? Because that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's an eye for that creative um, element of sure. of what flows together, what these colors that you put this color bar tape, it makes the frame pop or, yeah. or vice versa. So even even like, uh, you know, um, AJ at Victory Sur Circle Graphics, right? Yeah. Like we, he did finish tape for me for many years. He's still a really good friend and I, I get stickers from him whenever I can. I'll, I'll even... I'll even randomly like sneak in like a frame sticker order and try to like do it under my name and pay with my credit card. And he'll email me and be like, Hey dude, I'm just going to drop these in the mail. Like, what right. are you doing? And it's like looking to support the, support the brand, the company, you know, but someone like him who does, I mean, he does wraps and stickers for all sorts of bikes and, and he improves that look and has that detail. Um, and it's, yeah. It, yeah. He yeah, did my it. helmet last year. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I just kind of left it up to him. You know, I said, hey, sure. this is just for na national championship kit. And, you know, here's the, here's the photos of the kit. And he just came back with this amazing wrap, you know. Yeah. And um, I don't know. It really, those little elements, like no one's going to really notice if you, if you aren't wearing a Stars and Stripe helmet. Sure. But they're going to notice for sure if you are. Yeah. You know, like it adds that element. So, <laughs> so I have to ask you then about with your eye to toward kind of those things that, that jive well and a little bit on the fashion side of things. What do you think of the palace EF collab on the Jersey for the Giro? <clears throat> All right. The way, the way that I look at it, my personally personal opinion is I, I actually love it. Um, I, I saw it. I didn't see it super early on, but, but I saw it and, uh, it was, it was super top secret. Um, and basically, you know, they had to swap out their pink jersey. Um, Why? They, did, but they. But yeah. So I, mean, I guess it's different uh, 
direct or different race promoters because yeah it's R the, is it rcs because jumbo didn't have to change anything for their race well i guess they the were tour. i guess they were supposed to yeah and and so it was supposed to be less yellow than it was but then they were just like now nah, we're just keeping it the way it was yeah. anyways that so for the giro and this started i think last year the the, the race org for the giro was like hey you guys need to the, the pink looks too close to the leader's jersey with the pink helmet all that so you guys got to swap it up and they're like all right cool we're going to swap it up um, and so, and, and Rafa has done this in the past. They've done this change out, right? They've done a new kit, uh, for a specific race or for, um, you know, before the tour or whatever. And so this was all planned. Um, and they basically partnered with uh, a local London skateboard company that I think, you know, they're buddies with, yeah. uh, with Rafa and they basically, you know, they were going to title sponsor it or they were going to pay for the change out, right? And, yeah. and have all their branding. And, and yeah, it is wild. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but I mean, it's, it's spandex, you know? Right. It's like, it's a billboard for sponsors and, and it's you, whether it's positive or negative, it, there are impressions, right? For the kit. And there was, a, there was a ton of buzz before the race during a pandemic. I couldn't believe it didn't about, get leaked. And, you know, and honestly, I couldn't either. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I knew about it earlier on, but I wouldn't tell, I couldn't tell a soul because there were, there was so much red tape and it, it, it would, yeah, if it got out, it was going to be a big deal and you didn't want to be the person that got it out. And, um, you know, the fact that the UCI find them for basically, you know, they had, they had gotten it approved from the race in the UCI. Like, this is what we're bringing to the race. Like yeah. you told us to get rid of the pink. So we're going to, we're going to do this. And it's just, yeah, it, it's comical. Um, but th that, I feel like the fining added sure. heat to it. It just, you know, when like, I think at that point, the ship had already sailed, like yeah. it had already done the media that it did. And so like a 4,000 Swiss franc, fine. That's laughable. Right. You know, well, and, and it, it just brought more attention to a new kit that they were wearing. Sure. Like, you know, oh, well, what, let me see this thing. What, what did they get a final? Sure. You know, and you look at it and you're like, Oh well, yeah. What's palace, you know? And you start Googling into like, and, and for it, people that know, it's like, you know, it's like co collaborating with Supreme or sure. you know, some of these like high end boutique shops that are in the U S but if you don't know, and then, I mean, that's the whole point, but it's also think about it, you know, it. on just a, uh, marketing side or, you know, it's a company outside of cycling, right? right? It, it's, it's so that's like the yeah, Holy grail. Like sure. that's what every, to every bike totally. team is always wanting. It's like, okay, we, th there's only so much that the, the industry itself can support. Yeah. So how do we get these outside of the industry sponsors on board and get these outside eyeballs onto our sport? Absolutely. And, and so, you know, when, when it went official and it was all over Instagram, like, yeah, I started following Palace Skateboards and yeah. like, I went on their website. I almost bought a t-shirt, you know, like just to support the brand that was supporting cycling and right. think of it the other way. Think of like the skateboarders, you know, that are like, ah, oh, cool. Like cycling, like, oh wow. They're wearing, this is a wild kit. Like the yeah. ducks, the whole thing. Like maybe that brings some well, fans like into the sport. Skater, the faces. I don't yeah. even know who those people are, yeah. but I mean, it's, yeah, there are traditionalists that, that, are going to hate on it and just be like, oh, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. But come on, look at all cycling kit. Like, oh, yeah. unless it's like, you know, solid colors or like super cookie cutter, everything's ugly, like right? Or, or quick step jersey that's been around for Sure. It, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's just branding, right? It's yeah. just a billboard for a sponsor. And I, I don't know. I, I'm personally, I, I'm, I'm into it. I'm also, I'm also in the camp, but 
I mean, so do you get one? Do you have one? I'm, I'm hoping. I mean, yeah. I might have to buy some. Have you seen this stuff on eBay? It's oh, like dude. hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, as soon as it went live for yeah. purchase. I, I honestly, I reached out to a friend that I'm not an RCC member, but I have a buddy in town who was, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll log in and I'll try to get some gear. And yeah. he logged in and he, he had all the stuff in his cart and then he went to sign out and it was like, nah, all you get is the socks. Like yeah. everything else is sold out. <laughs> like it was, it was stolen like out of his cart. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's cool. I mean, there was obviously some, uh, there was some demand for it. You no, know, that's pe- good. That people were into it. The hype is there, you know? you know, so I think that's, and I'm, I'm success. used to it. Like I, I'm on the sneakers app. Yeah. So I've taken a couple L's trying to get some J's here oh, and there. Man. Uh, Who hasn't? And, I, and I've just given up. Like I, I can't, the stress of like trying to log in at 7am mountain time and like 701, everything's gone and right. you don't get it or whatever, whatever it is. I, I just... Yeah, I got to yeah. retire from that. <laughs> yeah, but there's that competitiveness that's uh, there. There is, but it's not, it's, yeah. But then you just have boxes of shoes in your closet <laughs> and your wife's like, why do you have all these shoes? I'm going to wear them one day. Someday. Yeah. How many pairs of shoes do you have? Me, personally? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious how many bikes the bike mechanic has yeah. and how many shoes you have because you're, you're Mr. Rogers. A little bit. You changed for the podcast but today. The th- well, that's because I had my outside shoes on, and now we're inside. Yeah. I think that the, the thing about shoes for me, or if it's whatever it is, you know, whether it's some people at sports cars or um, whatever your thing is, it, it, it's an experience, and you, it provides you with, it can provide you with, joy, right? Like it provides me with this sense of joy. Like it, for, for me, I look at, um, I get on the sneakers app and I see what's about to drop. And I'm like, oh man. What is the sneakers app? Notify. There's an app of the people use for the latest sneakers? So explain it, Tom. Yeah. So the sneakers app is a. Uh, Cause you both have it. It's affiliated with Nike. And okay. so it, it's a high end, it's, it's sort of, um, it's almost like a lottery website where basically they, it's, it's set up in pictures and it's just you scroll through shoes and it'll tell you, hey, they're dropping. This is the date. You want a notification? And it's a bunch of push notifications. And basically a lottery opens up and you have a very small chance of getting this small limited edition, depending on the shoe. If, it, if, it's, like a, if it's like a really limited edition retro or something, yeah, the chance of you getting it is very slim, but it's a lottery system, supposedly. There is an algorithm you put... You hit, yes, I want these as my size. Here's my money, take it. And then usually, you know, you'll get an email or a text and be like, yeah, you're good. Or no, nah, you, you didn't get those that time. Wow. Which then also makes it, uh, there's a market for, uh, for sales for after the fact. And, right? that, and then that's sort of what's ruining it, right? So there are bots that are basically swarming in on these 50 pairs of, of Jordans, you know, that are, that are trying to go out to the public worldwide. And they... They snatch up 20 of them and then immediately they're put on. They're scalpers. They're sneaker scalpers. Stock X or or some like, yeah. And then they bump up the price. And then, so it's sort of driven, you know, it's all of these, it's basically all of these old shoes, these retro shoes that that Nike is just remaking. And the demand is so high, but the supply is so low that, that now the demand, you know, and the price on these shoes just go through the roof. And it's. Yeah. Well, they play on your heartstrings because it's like, it's this nostalgia, totally, you know? I mean, totally. for, for me, you're like, oh, I remember when these Jordan 5s came out yeah. and, or I had a pair of these 6s and, you know, and now 
they're still being released or they're being re-released in like the original colorway or they've collaborated with, you know, some superstar. So they've got to have some input on what the design looks like. So those are valuable. Yeah. Like I've got, I mean, hopefully my wife's not going to listen to this podcast, but <laughs> I mean, I've got shoe boxes. You have more shoes than your wife. I have seven times the amount of shoes. I mean, you I have, have more than 20 I pairs also, of shoes. There's also two sides. There, there's, there are shoes that are in boxes that I've never worn that maybe I'll like break them out for some really special, or I might just keep them on ice until the value goes up and then I'll turn around and sell them. But then I also have, I have all these basketball shoes that I play in. I used to play in regularly that, that are just, yeah, I don't want to play in the same sh pair. I want to play in multiple different pairs during the week. And so there's two sides to my, to my closet. There's a stack of boxes that the kids are like, daddy, what, what's in all these boxes? And it's seriously, yeah, it's just sh shoes. I'm just, I'm basically hoarding, hoarding shoes. And hopefully one day it's going to, you know, pay for college. This is hard for Steve to grasp because he has, he has a javelin road bike. Yeah. And he's got a, a giant Classic. mountain bike. Yeah. And Too giant. I have an iguana. Right. And I have uh, an anthem. And, and so he doesn't understand why anybody would want anything different. Sure. It's either road or mountain, or sometimes the mountain can be ridden on the road. Yeah. Right. I might change the wheels. But gravel bike to Steve is like. And, and so, and, and sort of to like. On Jake's point with the feel good or, or the pleasure that you get from these shoes, like when I would travel to these races, you know, I'd always, and, and we were really fortunate to have New Balance as a sponsor for many, many years. And so they hooked us up with all sorts of amazing shoes and, and it, it was great. And so I have a collection of New Balances, huge collection. And so what I would do when I go to these races, I would have my bike washing shoes. You're a Melda Marcos. Yeah. yeah. I would have my bike washing shoes or my like day, day use shoes that I wouldn't mind getting greased up. And then I probably have like a pair of flip flops for the pool. And then I'd have like a nice, I'd have my like dinner shoes. I'd have like the crispest, like new balances that fresh out of the box. I'd usually like swap them out. Cause I'd want people to be like, Oh, there's no shoes. I'm like, nah, they're old, but I never wear them. But that, that's how I would, I would run it. And, and when I went to these races, that's You'd finish your day of work, finish a shower, you'd throw in your clothes to go to dinner, and then I'd put on these nice shoes, and I would just feel, you know, feel like a million bucks. You should it's, try it's it. It's Paolo Nutini. Yeah. The, the, the artist did a song. I got my new shoes on. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. I have like two pairs. It's funny how new shoes make you feel a certain way. I guess. I was going to ask how many cassettes he has, because he's the fastest cassette changer. I've seen on the his, planet. I've seen his wall. You must have a, a collection of cassettes. I've got a few. I mean, there, there are a lot of them are outdated. I mean, we're, we're moving into like 13 speeds now. Right. So I have cassettes. I mean, I, I don't even know if they would fit on the wheels that I have. Like, like have you pulled cassettes? I got Christian Vandeveld's cassette from when he augered it in and did this or, or <sighs> yeah. No, the only, yeah. I don't think I would have remembered. I mean, we have so many cassettes, so many wheels. You wouldn't. At your house. Not like, at my house, but at the service course. Like, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of something. Is that like the, the thing you, like, I, I have David Miller's cassette from when he won X. I was a big uh, race number guy. Okay. And so, okay. And, and so at the, you'd get these little, you know, like hard plastic race numbers that you had to mount behind the seat post, right? Um, and depending on the race, um, whether it was a good result or, or whether it was just a rider that I was a fan of, I would, at the end of the race, you know, 
a lot of times we would leave the numbers on and, the, and that race bike would just go back to the service course and, and you wouldn't take the number off until the next race and then the next mechanic would like take the number off and throw it, off, throw it away. But I would usually snake a couple of them from guys that I liked or I'd ask like, like later in, in my career, um, I would ask riders, hey, could you sign this number from your second place at Tour California or, or winning this right. or, or that? I would try to sneak those. So I have a wall and I have a big box of race numbers that I, I usually would write what the race was and sort of the result or who it was yeah. if you couldn't tell uh, the signature. I have this chain for Mark Cavendish because mm. you probably wrenched for him and you did Dimension Data yeah, Tour yeah. of California. Yeah, so, one year I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I have this chain. I, I personally don't, but you, you may have that and say, he put out so many watts in this one sprint, he yeah. stretched the chain. Check this out. No, no, it was so, brand new chain, 2,500 watts, and he stretched it. Funny, funny chain story. Uh, I wasn't at the Giro that David Miller famously broke his chain in the, in the final sprint there and then you know, chucked his bike into the field. Uh, Damo was there. <laughs> and so he said after the race, they had, they had like collected his chain. I think a fan had like picked it up. And so Damo had the chain. He brought it back to the hotel. We had it at the truck. And he was in, I think he was saying like in less than an hour, there was a Shimano truck that showed up and was like, hey, we need that chain and that chain ring and that cassette. Um, and David Miller was, he, somehow he was like close by or maybe he was talking to the mechanics about setup or something. And he's like, no, 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 that chain's mine. I'm taking that home. And I, and I think, I don't know if he still has it, but he has it like in a coffee, um, in like a, a coffee table, like glass case. Oh, wow. And it's the chain from, oh, from no. that Giro. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. I remember I have a, a buddy of mine who's a engineer for SRAM, and uh, it was he was Cancellara was on SRAM mm. toward the end of his career, and he broke a chain at the Roubaix, I believe. Okay. And uh, that was when the motor kicked in. <laughs> he was riding with no chain the last right. Right. few hundred. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, my buddy Dave said that this chain ended up on his desk. And then it was like, we have to figure out what happened. Sure. You know, like, we can't have these chains be breaking like this. But, yeah. But I mean, man, it's, it's such small tolerances. Like you said, we're going toward this world of 13 speeds. Yeah. And, you know, chains are getting thinner. The spacing between the gears is getting tighter. And, you know, you're just, and then it seems like the athletes are putting out as much power, if not more, than they ever have. Right. You know? and, right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, how that. do you keep it? How do you keep Cav with twenty five hundred watts in the last two hundred meters from breaking the chain? Yeah. Are they new? How often are you changing the chain? Uh, Guys that are putting out that kind of power. So uh, our rule, at least at let's say a Grand Tour, um, all bets are off at a Grand Tour. Yeah, at a Grand Tour daily. Uh, when we're doing like you know the as they like to call them, the cocaine chains. When we're running those on, on some like specific, either like uphill mountain finishes or some special day where we need to go all out with all of the, the fancy bearings and the fancy chains. Um, you know, we're maybe like every couple of days, we're having to swap back and forth from a race chain to, you know, a ceramic speed chain or whatever the coating is. Uh, back, when, back when we didn't have all that fancy stuff, the rest day, so like a Grand Tour, we get to that first rest day, we would, we would change everything. New chains, new cables and housing, new bar tape. And then that next rest day, we would do it again. So at a, at a big day or a big race like the tour, yeah, maybe you're going back then, we were going like 10 days or so or less on one chain. And then make, even whether it was stretched or not, whether it needed to be replaced, we would just do it sort of out of um, 
we, we were just preparing ourselves or, or making sure that there isn't an issue before an issue might come up. Cool. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, most everything I had. <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. appreciate you coming up, man, taking of the course. time out of your day and, and driving up. And yeah, yeah. It's always good to see you. I know that with, with everything going on, we haven't been able to, we're not racing cross. Yeah. We're not making trips to the front range. Just, that's usually when we see you guys and get to see your family and everything. So I hope you guys are all good and happy and healthy. But, um, and hopefully we'll be back to some racing soon so you can be back on the scene. I know. Yeah, it, this has been a long time in the making. You know, we, I think we talked about this last year doing this. And yeah. So just with everything that's come up, it's, you know, it's taken longer than I would like. But I, I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, yeah, it's man. nice to catch up and be in the mountains again. I know. Yeah. Well, with this reservation thing that's going on this this ski season, it could be either really good season to have a pass. Yeah. And you kind of have a, a unique uh, experience out there. It's going to be a unique experience no matter what. But I think that you know it, it could go one of two ways. You know. Yeah. No. I was I was bummed when we planned on doing this last week. I was looking at the weather. I was like, oh, I'm going to bring the mountain bike or the cross bike. We'll, we'll go and do a ride and then. Right. Then I saw the weather and I was like, ah, it's not quite ski season yet. I guess we're just going to hang out. I, I, was, I was looking forward to doing a bike ride with you. I think that would have been cool. Yeah. I was we'll just rain check thing. that. I know. Yeah. Because I think it's like 45 out there yeah. right now. Not, it's not great. It's not actually in the sun. It's not too bad, but yeah. right. I don't have all that gear. <laughs> right on. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Millie CBD. The CBD world is moving fast, and there are tons of products out there to choose from. Today, most people use CBD to promote overall health and wellness by supporting the body's homeostasis, otherwise known as its natural balance. Cannabinoids are an essential part of the body and support the endocannabinoid system, which helps regulate a wide variety of physiological systems. Millie offers many different CBD products, but personally, I prefer the CBD soft gels with melatonin before bed and I've experienced a noticeable change in sleep quality. I wake up feeling rested and ready to go. The CBD is non-psychoactive, so no, it won't get you high. Broad-spectrum CBD users report a wide range of benefits including improved mood, reduced stress, improved temporary sleeplessness, and reduced discomfort. Millie is a Colorado-based company offering high-quality formulations while providing a transparency regarding ingredients, dosing, and testing. This allows customers to feel safe in an innovative and fast-moving industry. Check out all the amazing products at Millie.co. That's M-I-L-L-I-E dot C-O. Use code FORM at checkout for 10% off your entire order.